Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm delighted to see you all here. This, uh, today's event, uh, which we've given a title of the King Crane Commission of 1919, has uh, been uh, on my mind for actually a number of years. Uh, I think 1919, celebrating the centenary of 1919, is uh, extraordinarily important. I think we forget what a significant year it was in terms of modern history, uh, certainly modern history of the Levant. Uh, but also of Europe. Uh, but before I start with my introduction to uh, today's talks, I wonder if I could just have Carol Palmer say a little bit, because this is also the centenary of the CBRL, the Council for British Research in the Levant. So how did that happen? I'm just going to say a few words about what happened in, in 1919 for the British School of Archaeology in uh, Jerusalem. Um, and the background is um, that on the uh, 6th of June, 1918, of course, Allenby entered into Jerusalem on foot on the 11th of December, is that right? So even before the end of the First World War, before the armistice, um, Sir Frederick uh, Kenyon, who was then director of the British Museum and president of the British Academy, um, he met uh, with a group of three men belonging to the British Academy and the Palestine Exploration Fund, and they met at the British Museum with the object of founding a British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem. So this shows in, in the, uh, the minds of these great men of the time their, their intention to study the archaeology and antiquities of, of the land of Palestine. And uh, the British School of Archaeology was founded then in 1919. They put together the committee. Um, and they were themselves, in July 1920, once the British School of Archaeology was, um, was founded, they met um, with Field Marshal Viscount Allenby and Sir Herbert Samuel, High Commissioner for Palestine. They were both elected by the organizing committee of the BSAJ to found the Department of Antiquities of Palestine. So the BSAJ was then um, commissioned to set up and train people to um, study the archeology span of uh, Palestine. So we find ourselves as an organization in the midst of a, uh, a very strong um, colonizing or mandate moment as well. Um, our situation now is somewhat different, but I, it's very, um, I don't know, it's quite overwhelming, I think, finding myself as a director of this organization now to think how close to um, the uh, to the mandate and to the to the to the British government, these people were on what they were setting up at that time. So I'm gonna just, that was the moment of 1919. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me let me uh, offer um, my own interpretive contextualization of, of 1919, if I may. Uh, both the uh, the with the King Crane Commission coming right in the middle of 1919, and also the first and then the second Pan-Syrian Congress, or some people say Pan-Arab Congress, some of the terminology changes. But as you know, at the end of World War I, the victors gathered in Paris uh, at the Paris Peace Conference to decide uh, 
the fate of the wartime enemies. And as you also know, the Allies, uh, Britain, France, Italy, and very late in the day, the United States, uh, ended up imposing rather severe conditions on Germany and its allies, something which Woodrow Wilson wasn't that happy about. Um, but the US under Woodrow Wilson um, had tried very hard to remain neutral in World War I. Um, uh, in fact, many statements were made at the beginning in the first few years of World War I that the US was uh, uh, neutral and certainly in its attitude towards the Ottoman Empire. But um, due to numerous incidences on the high seas, the sinking of, of, uh, of merchant ships and so on, uh, the U.S. finally entered the war uh, against Germany in 1917. Um, numerous secret wartime agreements had taken place amongst the Allies uh, between 1915 and 1917. I'm sure those are going to come up today. You probably, you know, I'm sure you all have heard about Sykes-Picot, and uh, Alan, um, a number of you have written about that. Um, but also the other secret uh, set of negotiations between the Sharif of uh, Sharif Hussein and the MacMahon, the correspondence or agreements uh, promising the Arabs a, a, a kingdom, if you want, in the southern provinces of the Ottoman Empire if they entered the war against the Ottomans. So there were a lot of agreements that were all conflicting with each other. But six months after entering the war, Woodrow Wilson, in January of 1918, outlined what he believed would be the principles upon which peace negotiations should be based. And these are the famous um, 14 points. Uh, and some of these 14 points you know, uh, number 14 was actually the creation of the League of Nations. But amongst these points was the recognition of the self-determination of numerous peoples, uh, the, uh, the understanding that, that Belgium should return to being Belgium, France, uh, Austro-Hungary, the, the also Poland, and uh, Serbia, Macedonia, all these places, self-determination, uh, that kind of example was being used to say these people should be able to return to being uh, independent countries. Um, but for the Turkish people of the Ottoman Empire, they were to have their own country and other nationalities of the Ottoman Empire. Um, well, they would have security. There are lots of different statements as to what he intended, but the interpretation was that some form of canvassing of the opinion of the other nationalities of the Ottoman Empire should take place. Uh, and so there were quite a bit of negotiations, which I'm sure will come up here. It took about six months after January's uh, 14 points for a, a committee to actually be uh, established. Uh, it was meant to be an inter-allied committee that included French and uh, British representatives. Um, and for a while, it seemed as though that would happen. Um, there was a point when Howard Bliss, who at the time was the president of the Syrian Protestant College, which had moved from Aleppo to Beirut and is now American University of Beirut, actually stated um, that an inter-allied or neutral commission or mixed commission should be sent at once uh, in order to give an opportunity to the people of Syria, including Lebanon, to express in a perfectly <coughs> untrammeled way their political wishes and aspirations uh, in terms of what form of government they desire and as to what power, if any, should be their mandatory protecting power. Um, so France and Britain and Italy 
kind of went along with this for a while, and then they delayed, and finally they backed out. So in the end, the Allied, the Inter-Allied Commission was only American, and it was made up of two commissioners, one the, uh, who was president of Oberlin College, and also very important in the YMCA, the um, uh, Young Men's Christian Association, and Charles Crane, who was a very wealthy philanthropist. Uh, these were the two commissioners. They brought along board an advisor, Albert uh, Lieber, who was, uh, he had some experience of the Orient, uh, having been a teacher at Roberts College in Istanbul. And along the line, they also brought on board two technical advisors, one for the northern region and one for the southern region. And so their report, well, I think you could say more than one report was filed. Um, the, um, many of the participants in the Paris Peace Conference, once it was realized that this commission was going to go forward, uh, became very nervous. And their nervousness was due to what I just mentioned earlier. The destiny, they felt that the destinies of the region had already been determined by the numerous wartime agreements, I'll call them still secret, that had been made during the war, and that any contradictions that might exist could be ironed out by the representatives in Paris. Uh, so the commission did its work, and uh, hopefully we'll hear how they went about doing the work, which is a fascinating story. Um, they started their work in, in June. They completed it and submitted their report in August of 1919. But then it wasn't published until 1922 in a journal. It kind of disappeared. Um, and in that intervening period, though, the Wilsonian doctrine was very much discussed in the region. The elites in the cities of Cairo, of Beirut, of Damascus were talking about the significance of self-determination of peoples. The first and second Pan-Syrian Congress met in Damascus. They endorsed the Wilsonian principles of self-determination. And they also made the statement that greater Syria should remain intact and it should be independent. Uh, but if it had to be mandated, then uh, perhaps it could be mandated to the United States. Uh, but they also strenuously objected to the separation of the southern uh, parts of Syria, Palestine, uh, as well as the creation in Palestine of a Jewish homeland. So you can already see how even in 1919, these kind of findings were going to be uh, contentious. They were going to be difficult. They weren't going to be uh, necessarily following along the line of uh, what the uh, diplomats in Paris were uh, hammering out, I think I could say. Uh, and uh, as Andrew Patrick writes in his book, which I found fascinating, and hopefully uh, he'll say a lot more about it, I just sum up his sentence at the end that the King Crane Commission, its findings, provide the great what if in the history of the Middle East, providing the basis for some rather stunning, if improbable, counterfactuals. And hopefully we'll come across these and discuss them um, as, as we proceed. What I suggest we do is we'll have the first two speakers, uh, uh, Laurie and Lauren, uh, without any question-answer session. And uh, then we'll save all of our questions for the very end. I hope that'll be OK. But if there's a pressing issue that somebody wants to raise that feels we really need to, um, to discuss, then 
um, I'm sure we'll, we'll take that. So let's start with um, Laurie Allen's paper, Investigating Liberals. The King Crane Commission is a first among many. Uh, Laurie is a senior lecturer uh, in the Department of Anthropology at SOAS here at the University of London. And um, her earlier book, The Rise and Fall of Human Rights, Cynicism and Politics in Occupied Palestine, probably touches on some of this. But her more recent book that's coming out now, next year? This Maybe year? next year. Next year? Hopefully next year. Uh, Investigating Liberals, a Historical Anthropology of International Law in Palestine, Stanford University Press. Looking forward to reading that. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks to CBRL for this invitation. Um, and to Maggie very much for organizing all of this. Uh, as um, I think Don mentioned, I'm an anthropologist, so I'm kind of an interloper in this historical field. I'll be very keen to hear what my historian colleagues have to say about my approach. So as Don mentioned, for the last few years, I've been working on a book, and it's about international law and liberalism in Palestinian politics, tentatively entitled Investigating Liberals, a Historical Anthropology of International Law in Palestine. And it's a kind of a genealogical history, and it analyzes Palestinian engagement with international law as a central mechanism of liberalism through an exploration of international investigative commissions to Palestine over the last hundred years. So it's a kind of a, a prehistory to my first book, which was an ethnography of the human rights system in Palestine from sort of the 1970s onwards. So this current book examines six commissions that have gone to Palestine from the King Crane Commission in 1919 um, through the present. And here is a partial list of the commissions that have investigated Palestine, just to give you a sense of how many of these there have been, how investigated Palestine has been. Um, and the latest commission issued its report in March of 2019. Commissions usually consist of a group of experts of one kind or another, including academics, lawyers, um, judges, legislators, diplomats, and they're usually formed by a coalition of governments to investigate a specific set of circumstances, uh, usually prompted by a period of intensified violence. And in general, they're charged with understanding the reasons for violence and making recommendations for how to reach a political solution. Most commissions these days are sent by the UN Human Rights Council and use international humanitarian and human rights law as their framework. Each one has held out the promise of sovereignty, equality, justice, and each has failed to deliver on that promise. Depending on how we define things, the King Crane Commission was the first investigative commission to Palestine. And it was interesting for a lot of reasons, many of which you'll hear about from my colleagues. Uh, I want to give you a sense of just two of those reasons. First, by showing you how much hope in liberal international law this commission prompted. And secondly, by offering a broader historical context in which to consider this commission as one investigation among many that has offered Palestinians unfulfilled hopes. First, a bit of background to the King Crane Commission. As Don already referenced, in US President Woodrow Wilson's famous speech in 1918, he outlined his 14 points, principles by which he thought international peace could be restored and imperialism put to an end. 
Wilson reassured the Arabs in the unraveling Ottoman Empire that they should have a, an absolutely unmolested opportunity of an autonomous development. In a follow-up speech, he said, self-determination is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative principle of action. This is part of what spurred the growing importance of self-determination in international law, heralding a new international order in this period. And Arabs in the region seized on its public articulation to further their claims for independence and to raise their objections to Zionism, claiming the principle of self-determination for themselves, the native inhabitants of Palestine. Wilson had said the reconstruction of international peace could only happen with a view to the wishes of the peoples involved. And he dispatched the investigative commission to what was then Greater Syria, which included Palestine, to find out what those wishes were. The British, the occupying power in Palestine at the time, were not so keen on this investigative commission. And here's where I give you a bit of the history of the conflict. In Prime Minister Lloyd George's address at the peace conference, he predicted that the competing nationalist claimants in Palestine were, quote, going to grow up into two troublesome chickens, the Jew virile, brave, determined, intelligent, the Arab decadent, dishonest, and producing little beyond eccentrics influenced by the romance and silence of the desert. So that gives us some idea of what the Arabs were up against at this point. The British considered Palestine to be you know, some kind of Hobbesian barnyard and themselves somehow the best or only order imposing Leviathan for the job. The troublesome condition of Palestine was by then already well known. Palestinians had been protesting the Balfour Declaration since the British made this promise to help facilitate a Jewish homeland in Palestine in 1917. By the time of the King Crane Commission in 1919, the Balfour Declaration had been incorporated into the text of the Palestine Mandate, converting that statement into one of, from intention into a legally binding obligation within the League of Nations. Despite British objections, Woodrow Wilson asked Henry King and Charles Crane to forge ahead with their investigation. And judging from newspaper accounts of the date, there was every expectation among the Arabs that the Commission's findings would impact the peace conference and the future of Palestine. The only possible outcome of an unbiased examination of the facts was their freedom, Arabs thought. King Crane and the other commissioners heard the statements of delegations and collected petitions from various groups throughout Palestine, including the political elite, of course, village chiefs and notables, but also merchants, municipal councils, political party representatives, cultivators, and even Muslim ladies, as the commission recorded them. The commission heard consistent demands across these diverse strata of the Palestinian public. The majority wanted independence in a multi-faith, united Arab nation of greater Syria, including Palestine, under the constitutional rule of a monarch. Although they spoke in the terms of interna international law of the time, of sovereignty and self-determination, protection of minorities, the commission's Arab interlocutors were aware and wary of some of the dynamics of international law at the time namely the dangers of being governed by a mandate power as an extension of colonial rule. Many Arabs did not want a mandate because, as one commentator foretold, quote, our acceptance of foreign sponsorship would be an admission 
of our own inability to govern ourselves and therefore deny us of the opportunity at any point in the future to enjoy that right. The majority also vehemently oppose the Zionist plan to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Despite this wariness among some, there was also a lot of hope. The King Crane Commission was a first forum in which Arabs in Palestine developed public hope that a liberal international order and international law would include them and include them in a nation state of equal stature to all others in the international community. So I want to explain a, a little bit how the historical record gives us this evidence of Palestinian investment and faith in the new international legal order that the King Crane Commission symbolized. To give you a sense of how enthusiastic the Arabs of Palestine were, that they would be granted the independence that they believed they deserved. And this is important for my longer story about how the cycle of hope and disappointment that commissions have motivated over a century of Palestinian history has started. Palestinians from all walks of life engaged with the King Crane Commission. Um, and they were convinced that their legal, logical argumentation would be persuasive to the powers that be. Consider, for example, a petition from 1919 from a self-described Christian and Muslim delegation of southern Syria known as Palestine. They submitted a petition, quote, with the full hope that these, our arguments and proofs, will receive due consideration and that our rights to our home will be confirmed. In their submission to the <coughs> King Crane Commission, they expressed hope that the Zionist claims, quote, might be shattered asunder through our infallible proofs. They called on the Paris Peace Conference not to encourage Zionism and its religious <coughs> fundamentalism. Another indication of Palestinians' investment in this commission is in the Arabic press of the day. This collective hope ricocheted across the region's newspapers um, in what was already a very lively transnational Arabic press, which was especially active in Palestine. The newspapers were inundated with observant and loquacious writers co commenting on the King Crane Commission. One wrote at the time, the news of the Entente sending a commission has been spread with the rapidity of lightning in all the East. The editor of the newspaper, Al Manar, urged their compatriots to unite and take an active role in the Europeans' decision about their country. Between April, when the King Crane Commission was first being organized, and August of 1919, when it completed its trip in the Near East, the newspaper Al-Asima published one or two articles discussing the King Crane Commission almost every single week, and so did other Arabic newspapers. But their hope was also more than discursive. The King Crane Commission received a rug with the map of the Arabs' preferred national borders woven into it, which was to be presented um, and passed on to President Wilson at the peace conference. I'm somehow doubting it made it to him. Um, Arabs throughout the Levant expected that the International Commission would see the sincerity of their claims through their very public presence. Crowds gathered in the hundreds in the streets to greet the commission and submit their petitions, despite the British military government's official announcements discouraging such public excitement. In one of my favorite episodes from this period, which one of the commission members described in a letter home to his wife, a crowd of some 100 men bearing swords and spears stopped the commission outside of Tripoli, <coughs> excuse me, on its way to Homs in present-day Syria, in order to deliver their message. 
Atop their Arabian horses, they escorted the commission onwards to the next roadside mounted delegation, and it made an impression on the commission member, as surely it was intended to do. Arabs voiced their expectations that the United States, which was touted at the time as being an anti-imperial force for good in the world, they voiced their expectations that the US would support Arab claims for independence in this post-imperial world. Photographs taken by the commission members show that Arab delegations included what seemed to be whole families. The, the great crowds that came out to meet them included, apparently, many women and some children. The commission thought that the women they heard from were more determined even than the Muslim men. Delegations wearing their finest clothes received the commission with shouts of America, Wilson, hailing the US president as a beacon of democracy. In an address delivered by the president of the Literary Society of Bethlehem, Johanna Khalil de Krat, he lauded the commission and the commissioners. Quote, undoubtedly, you would be among those whose names are remembered throughout modern history as they would be written in gold ink. In other photographs, commission members are shown holding babies like so many campaigning politicians. These are all indications of how much hopeful anticipation the Arabs invested in this commission. The commission was at the center of an intensely engaged transnational conversation among impassioned members of a post-Ottoman civil society. This commission recorded the Arabs' wishes for an independent polity based on democratic principles. The investigators encountered multitudes of enthusiastic interlocutors who were inspired by desires of progress, a commitment to equality, and an abhorrence of sectarianism. The King Crane Commission discovered that the Arabs had formulated their political proposals according to democratic procedures, whereby consensus was reached through deliberations among contributors to a free press and which was presented by elected representatives. And they found that their petitioners, um, including people who were coming to identify themselves as Palestinian, had a clear vision for a system of governance that would include constitutional guarantees for minority rights with special consideration for the rights of Jews as equal citizens. And this is something that's really interesting to me and the stuff that I've read from sort of 1914 onwards is the constant reiteration of a commitment to respecting native Jews in Palestine as citizens equal with any other Christian or Muslim future citizen. And this is reiterated again in the petitions to the King Crane Commission, but didn't start with that. Um, as one of the investigators on the commission reported favorably, his Arab interlocutors struck him as people who believed one man is a, as good as another, sort of crystallizing this liberal ethos. In short, the commission found a world of Arab liberals who thought themselves part of the new world order that Wilson championed. They were people who knew themselves to be members of the progress of the world's peace that would uphold what Woodrow Wilson was calling for, the rule of international law and to put down autocracy and militarism. The Arabs' liberal values of religious tolerance and political aspirations for self-governance and representative democracy were shared, they thought, with the Westerners deciding the fate of the peoples left in the defeated empires. These were the principles that Wilson encouraged in his pronouncements about respect for small nations and his commitment that the post-war settlement 
would be guided by the interests of the populations concerned. In the Arabs' view, their interests could be fulfilled by a sovereign nation state, an independent home for themselves, a people with a common language, a common culture and history. It was only reasonable, they believed, that their shared origins and cultural and political unity, their Arab presence in a defined territory since the 12th century, constituted proof enough of their rights to the nation. But reason is never reason enough. Despite the promises of self-governance and equality inherent in the international legal logic being touted by Wilson and the commission, the world that the Arabs encountered was operating beyond the bounds of liberal reason. It functioned according to a blend of hubris and imperialist greed. Despite the reasonably expressed uniform demands for absolute independence that the King Crane Commission recorded, and despite the Commission's proposal that the Arabs be assisted in developing their independent polity, the great powers granted the mandate of Palestine to the British, which ruled Palestine under the aegis of the League of Nations until Israel gained an independent state in most of the territory in 1948. So a full cycle of hope and disappointment that would mark future international interventions in Palestine was complete. Collective hopes inspired by imperial promises and lip service attention to public opinion met with keen attempts by Arabs to prove their liberal worthiness of respect from other liberals, followed by assessment of their political readiness and Arab disappointment at the political promises left unfulfilled. The King Crane Commission was a first rotation in this cycle of self-representation, investigation, and disregard that would repeat itself throughout Palestinian history. The British were famous for their use of commissions across the empire. Um, here's another that was sent in 1946, an Anglo-American commission. But the British receded from the scene when Israel became an independent state on most of historic Palestine in 1948, at which point the Americans and especially the United Nations became the most active dispatchers of investigations. So we can see international law's permeation of Palestine on many levels going back quite far, evident from the rise of international institutionalism after World I, through a string of UN resolutions from the 1947 resolution that partitioned the country onwards into the 1970s, when human rights NGOs became a real crucible of Palestinian activism. Although the UN failed to prevent war and the state of Israel was established against all Arab wishes, the UN eventually emerged as a new forum in which Palestinians could express their claims for sovereignty and demand um, protections supposedly provided by human rights and humanitarian law. And I haven't time to go into detail, but what's evident in Palestinians' testimony to many later investigations that the UN and other governments have sent is that they have each reignited a vigorous hope in that world body and the power of international law, hope in a world working in the service of international law and human rights. As one witness from the West Bank told the UN Special Investigative Commission in 1974, the UN gave him, quote, at least a ray of hope for us in the future of humanity. Exchanges between Palestinians and their investigators are full of such announcements of hope, continually expressing their belief in a humanity with a conscience. These are expectations that the international community will put an end to their suffering. 
the international community through these commissions encourages these expectations. And the King Crane Commission I'm suggesting is one of the first kind of manifestations of this form of international community. Yeah? In 2009, South African judge Richard Goldstone explained the goal of the UN Commission he was heading. Quote, the aim is to allow victims and survivors on all sides to speak for themselves to the international community. One of the survivors they heard from was a man from the Gaza Strip who lost 11 members of his family to Israeli shelling. He told Goldstone, quote, what we hope is that you will portray the picture as you have seen it, and we hope that the criminal will be held accountable for his crimes. Israel and the occupation army have perpetrated every single war crime in the books, the houses, the trees, the children, the schools, the mosques. So his was a bitter hope. The stated aim of these fact-finding missions usually has been to gather facts, examine them in the light of international law, and seek a path to peace. During these investigations, Palestinians have tried to explain why they deserve an independent nation-state, how their case is supported by international law, and why their deprivation of the right to sovereignty is among the root causes of violence based on voluntary and public consultation and drawing on legal language and often approximating legal standards of evidence, commissions function in the realm of dialogue and civility, operating on the promise that international law can be a means to resolving the conflict. Commissions have shaped Palestinian politics and the conflict with Zionism and Israel in many ways, foremost among which has been their activation of international law as a medium of ideology and politics, Despite the repeated failures of commissions and the international legal regime which they represent, legalism, you know, this idea that the objective rules of law can produce fair results, that law is universally accessible to all and equally, that law can be a break on power, liberal legalism continues to pull Palestinians and others into engaging with these adjudicating processes. Fundamental liberal principles such as democracy and self-determination, freedom and progress, have come to be the exclusive provenance of some, but still constitute an ideology that sutures those excluded from it, the dominated, into its web of aspirations. The embroilment of everyone from political representatives, technocrats, lawyers, NGO activists, fishermen, and farmers from the moment of the King Crane Commission onwards, their embroilment in this international legal mode has narrowed, I think, political vision and action for Palestine. It has also provided the international community with a means to justify practical refusal of Palestinian claims to independence. International law, as uniquely activated through investigative commissions, is an arena in which liberalism has functioned as an ideology of rule in different ways for the rulers and the ruled. In the webs of representational commotion that are spun around them, commissions put on display the liberal aims of international law, and the King Crane Commission was a perfect and first crystallizing example of this, right? These people coming to understand the public and political opinion of the masses who came under Wilson's aegis with the proclamations of democracy and self-determination being priorities for how to organize international relations from there on forward, right? Um, all of these commissions put on display these liberal aims and put on display international legal principles. 
And they bring political opponents together in a shared framework of social and intellectual interaction that is posited as a level playing field, but um, never actually is. And I'll end there. Thank you very much. We'll move on. Uh, now, we're going to be really experts on the King Crane Commission by the time we get to the end of the evening. Uh, Lauren is uh, going to develop some of these ideas, I think, uh, more broadly. She's going to be looking at the 1919 King Crane Commission in a transnational context between the mission uh, civilisatrice and revolution. So I'm assuming this is going to be looking at the competition between the French and the British, but maybe mm, I'm wrong. Maybe not as much. <laughs> Lauren is um, a lecturer in Middle Eastern history at Yale University, and she previously held a post uh, postdoc at the University of Manchester, uh, having received her PhD here at SOAS uh, earlier, and her first book, The Invention of Palestinian Citizenship, 1919-1947, was published by Edinburgh University Press. I'm sure there's another book on the way. Yes, hopefully. Yes. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> thank you so much, John, and thank you to everyone at CBRL and Maggie as well for helping to organize this and really um, be able to draw such a good crowd, I think, as well. I think this is a really good setup for this kind of talk. Uh, I have to say I don't really have PowerPoint slides like Laurie did, but this may suffice for now, I hope. Uh, and I want to thank Laurie as well for painting such a vivid picture of Palestine and also of greater Syria, the reception that was given to the King Crane Commission and the real enthusiasm. I think this is something that is worth talking about maybe more, although I'm not going to talk about that so much. Um, and this idea of hope for the findings of the King Crane Commission amongst the populations of, of Syria and, and southern Syria. And I'll talk about Palestine a little bit, but what I want to explore in more detail in my talk is something else and something that will maybe question seeing the Wilsonian moment as a kind of watershed in which all of a sudden there is this new enthusiasm for liberalism and the idea of self-determination. Um, my talk itself is very much exploratory and maybe has more questions perhaps than answers at this stage. I don't want to talk so much about the King Crane Commissions, the delegations that, that were met with, or the conclusions, or analyze the petitions in such detail as, as Laurie did, although certainly the amount of petitions that were received are really interesting, I think, to go in and back and look at. And for those of you who are interested, and Andrew may bring this up as well, I think most or many of them are archived online digitally now. So there is this repository of all of these commissions that um, are really interesting to go through now. What I want to do is try and frame the King Crane Commission in its trans, the kind of wider transnational or transregional context, an ideological context in which it conducted its work in 1919, with a focus on Palestine and maybe more Egypt. As a historian, I think it's worth discussing briefly this kind of transnational Arab Levant context in which certain European and American perceptions of race, culture and identity played out and impacted the King Crane Commission. So for instance, the, the commission traveled through Syria, as we've heard in 1919 in the spring, and then actually arrived in, in greater Syria in the summer of 1919, which was at the exact same moment that the United States recognized the officialness of the British protectorate over Egypt. 
And this recognition came on the basis that the Egyptians, the US recognition of the protectorate, which had been in place since the, the start of the First World War, but the US actual kind of affirmation of it came partly as a result of the idea that the Egyptians were too culturally inferior to actually have the right to self-determination. So this is something coming from President Woodrow Wilson's administration at the exact time that the King Crane Commission arrives in, in the Levant or at Jaffa. And this is a shift, this idea of when do Europeans and Americans start seeing the Middle East or the former Ottoman Empire as culturally inferior and too culturally inferior to be granted independence. Uh, sort of prior to this, at the turn of the century, there was certainly this idea that the inhabitants of the Middle East, at least in the Arab parts, were too racially inferior to have independence. So there is this kind of shift around the time the King Crane Commission comes into being. And I want to talk about that in a little bit more detail here. <clears throat> and I want to think as well about what role the notions of inferiority meant, if any, for the King Crane Commission, the actual commission members, or at least the five or six or so who really mattered, within this so-called Wilsonian moment of 1918 and 1919, and also within the ways in which the King Crane Commission itself portrayed its mission. And I think placing the King Crane Commission in its kind of proper historical context, post-war European insistence, or the kind of heyday of this idea of a civilizing mission, or mission civilisatrice, within the Middle East and within the wider imperial world. And I think this ideology is necessary to understand how the commission too fits into this interwar context of civilizing mission mixed with liberalism and also mixed with racism. As it became embedded within the Western idea of tutelage or trusteeship and Western claims to being able to send commissions that would understand the desires and wishes of the population. And I think we look at, or the very, and Andrew's work goes into this a little bit, the little work that has actually been done on the King Crane Commission, it's often put within this bubble of other wartime promises that the Allies made between each other, or for instance, the, the Hussein McMahon correspondence with leaders within the Arab world, rather than what maybe we should think about doing, and this is sort of the exploratory nature of this talk, thinking of the King Crane Commission within its wider imperial context in 1919, that it's not just these promises that are slowly being made public to the Arabs, uh, the Balfour Declaration becoming public around this time as well in, in kind of great detail, but also other events that are happening in Egypt, in India, that may have also had just as much of an impact upon the delegations in the Arab world meeting with, with King Crane as did these treaties. Undoubtedly, the, the 1919 Inter-Allied Commission, or the King Crane Commission, which was meant, again, to resolve this question of how to create a lasting post-war settlement for Ottoman Syria, framed its duty, performed its tasks, and presented its findings for a European and American audience. Again, I think ultimately the King Crane Commission, its findings were not meant for the Arab world to really um, have much to do with. This was specifically for a European and American audience. And the commission worked on behalf of the United States administration. Again, this has been, been mentioned earlier. With the Paris Peace Conference, the, the delegates there as part of this wider audience. And so in part, it's this duty of the King Crane Commission, which is not necessarily to the Arab world, but it's to the, the Western world that I want to also problematize here in thinking about. <clears throat> 
And again, as I said, this duty of the King Crane Commission comes as this sort of heyday of the imperial civilizing mission in the immediate post-war era, post-World War, First World War era. And the civilizing mission ideology remained a kind of mainstay remedy for first the racial and then the perceived cultural inferiority of communities of Asia and Africa. <clears throat> and framing the King Crane Commission within this wider context of imperial civilizing missions pushes against the argument of some historians who have claimed that this Wilsonian moment in which self-determination came to be seen as a promise to be soon fulfilled in the Middle East was a watershed in transforming the ways that colonized people thought about themselves. <clears throat> people like Erez Manella specifically have, have made this claim that this was the moment colonized people realized that they could be self-determined. Uh, and so to begin this discussion, I want to briefly discuss a reassessment of 1919 within this Wilsonian moment. And something that I came across recently, uh, a piece by um, a historian called Hussein Omar, who's in Dublin, in the London Review of Books, has made this argument that we should review or view the, the years between 1918 and 1925 as a kind of Arab Spring um, of the earlier, the post-war Arab Spring, or the 1919 Arab Spring that, that he calls it. And Omar touches upon, although not in name, the Egyptian reception of Woodrow Wilson's civilizing mission ideology, which then again became embedded in the League of Nations, the mandates for the League of Nations. <clears throat> and prior to January of 1918, when Wilson made his 14 points platform speech, he also made clear prior to this, that a post-war settlement needed to include frameworks for which rulers could only govern with the consent of the ruled. So something that then kind of morphed into what we think of as self-determination, but this idea, idea that Wilson promoted that rulers could only govern with the consent of the ruled, and I don't want to sort of step on the toes of, of maybe Andrew's talk, so I won't go into this too much, but it's quite vague in itself, right? The idea did not necessarily mean that independence had anything to do with self-determination, right? It was the idea that only with the consent of the people could an imperial power, a colonial power, or a mandate rule. But there was not really embodied within this idea kind of full self-determination that was being demanded in 1919, for instance, by the Egyptians to the British. And Omar also makes an important argument, I think, in pushing against the notion that the inhabitants of the Middle East at this point equally saw Wilsonian self-determination as independence, as liberation, as sovereignty. So I think there's also something to be said or maybe studied in the future here as to the ways in which this idea of self-determination was sort of seen through by the inhabitants of the region, that this wasn't exactly what maybe we today see it as. And Andrew Patrick has also made clear in, in his work that Wilson himself did not view self-determination as independence, but again, rather that the inhabitants of the small states Wilson talked about could simply have some say in the right or some say in the appointment of their overlords. And Omar, so Hussein Omar's piece in the London Review of Books also argues that Egyptians by the end of the war perceived and also openly analyzed Wilson's white supremacist attitudes and also critically understood that Wilson's rhetoric positioned him within Egypt, within the uh, greater Syria, in the popular imagination as a kind of white savior. And Wilson himself, again, I think we need to place him into this kind of context of civilizing mission and other things. He was also 
very keen to enforce segregation in the United States before and after his election, and certainly at the time of 1919. This is still going on. And only three years prior to his 14-point speech on, on self-determination, or what becomes known as that, he played a very important role in supporting the making of David Griffith's, Griffith's racist and pro-Klu Klux Klan film, The Birth of a Nation. Um, so Wilson is also embedded within these very interesting kind of liberal slash racist uh, ways of understanding at least the United States, the structure of US society. At the same time, he's taken on this role as kind of an ambassador for these new notions of liberalism in the post-Ottoman world. And I think racism, it must be said, framed Wilson's approach to the Arab world as well. Because at the core of his beliefs, was that only whites were capable of democracy. And that according to Wilson at the turn of the century, so this is a, a little bit before 1919, um, but his thinking was that democracy, self-determination required the homogeneity of race. And it also required the rule of the majority. And that majority in Wilson's thinking had to be white. So this meant that for Wilson and for others who thought in the same kind of racialized ways that the indigenous population of the Middle East you know, before the King Crane Emission, uh, Commission was ever envisioned, could not be classified as wholly white. And so they couldn't necessarily advance to this stage of democracy. Their race could not be changed. And so neither could their capacity for civilizational development, for self-determination. And I think something that's interesting here is that Wilson's thinking on this was a little bit different from the thinking by 1919 amongst some British colonial officials who had began slowly to see Arabs and Muslims as no longer racially uncivilized, but as culturally uncivilized. And that could be changed, right? So this maybe was, played some role at least in, in um, the way the British started to think about the mandates for sure. That cultural inferiority could be changed through tutelage. So, so through tutoring, through education, teaching, preparation towards greater civilization, right? So this was the notion of the mandates, the system of tutelage to bring the post-Ottoman world into this higher level of civilization to be able to enforce self-rule. And Willow Berridge, um, a historian of, of Egypt, has argued that for the case of Egypt, it's this justification that led to the continued protectorate over Egypt by Great Britain from 1914 and, and 1919. It came to be based on the cultural rather than racial inferiority of the Egyptians. So the protectorate was there again to prepare the Egyptians for self-rule culturally. <clears throat> so still today, historians of 1919 and the post-war Wilsonian movement often take the 14 points for peace of President Wilson as a starting point for Western liberal anti-imperialism. And the American King Crane Commission, too, is often placed within this anti-imperial view or kind of softer imperial view of the future of Asia and Africa. And again, this is potentially because of its final report, which, which Laurie mentioned, which called for a kind of unification of greater Syria. Um, it was against Zionism in, in some ways because of what would it, the, the, um, the population of, of Palestine specifically was very much against that. <clears throat> But again, I think we, we tend to see the King Crane Commission as the start of this liberal movement, anti-imperial movement in the Middle East, when in reality, I think Wilson's thinking behind it may have been a little bit different. 
And I want to turn very briefly to, to Egypt in the context of 1919, because I think it's somewhat instructive then for the ways in which the British tried to put a certain handle, in Palestine at least, on the delegations that were to meet with uh, the commission itself. It didn't take long, I think, for the Egyptian nationalist movement in 1919 to realize the limits of this idea of self-determination. The British refused to allow a delegation of Egyptian nationalists, again in the same year in 1919, to travel to Paris to present their argument in favor of independence at the peace conference. And the outcry against Britain's sort of intransigence quickly followed within Egypt and was just as quickly suppressed in the spring of 1919. And it's as the Egyptian delegation, which managed to kind of go against Britain's wishes and did try to make its way to Paris in defiance of Great Britain, while it was en route, the Wilson administration acted to kind of preempt it by affirming the protectorate over Egypt and recognizing British imperial control over Egypt. And the Egyptians who attempted to travel to Paris for the peace conference found out about Wilson's stance upon their arrival to France and reacted with shock at what they immediately began to see as a betrayal by Wilson. So again, this is a couple months before the King Crane Commission arrived to the, the Mediterranean, to the shores of Palestine. That already there is this thinking that Wilson is not necessarily going to make good on these promises of self-rule. <clears throat> and Wilson himself, the recognition, I think I said this earlier, of, of the protectorate was that the US also felt the Egyptians were not culturally ready to be granted independence. And Wilson also saw that any revolt or uprising by the Egyptians to attain self-determination had to be recognized as illegitimate. <clears throat> and this act by the US government to support the British protectorate in Egypt did not go unnoticed by the Arabs of greater Syria, Palestine included, particularly as Egypt was in the midst of an anti-occupation uprising throughout the spring and, and summer of 1918. So at the exact moment that the commission was visiting in greater Syria, the British had managed um, to kill over 800 Egyptians as a result of Egyptian protests, strikes, civil disobedience, and defiance of the protectorate. <clears throat> And it's also hard to believe that in the midst of Egypt's uprising in 1919, that the Arab provinces could have trusted the King Crane Commission to truly enforce or trust that the future mandatories would not act just as Great Britain was doing at that same moment in Egypt or as Wilson was acting at home. There are also these things that we, we probably don't have so much time to get into, but these sort of solidarities in which Many members of the Arab kind of intellectual uh, intelligentsia were well aware of the segregationist policies going on in, in the United States under Wilson's administration and before that. And we also shouldn't forget that the Arab world, again, exactly at this time of, of King Crane's visit, witnessed the news reports of the Amritsar massacre, also in 1919, carried out by British soldiers in India. This happening only a couple of months prior to the King Crane Commission. And in fact, the chief administrator of the British military government after the, the end of the First World War, which was headquartered in Palestine and known as Occupied Enemy Territory Administration, the head of that, that military administration, a man by the name of um, Arthur Money, General Arthur Money, 
made a statement one, as soon as the commission arrived, or about that time, that the Palestinian Arabs felt that the violence of the British in the spring of 1919 in Egypt and India proved the British, quote, tenacity in retaining any country in which she has once received a footing, and recent events in Egypt have made a profound impression in Palestine, unquote. <clears throat> so in fact, this was just as much this had just as much of an impact as did the recent publication of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which had previously been kept sort of under wraps, and the Balfour Declaration. <clears throat> and I want to turn to the, the, one of the Commission's members just briefly um, to kind of draw this sort of ideological strand through. One of the main supporting members, its technical advisor, I think for the, the South, uh, a man by the name of William Yale, believed that the Arabs, so upon arrival to, to Syria, his thinking was that the Arabs remained pre-modern with fanatical tendencies toward Islam. And Yale believed, so a member of the commission, his perspective in 1919 was that attachments, the attachments of the Arabs to their villages precluded any kind of political action or true nationalist unification. So again, this thinking filtered down, this civilizing mission kind of racialized thinking filtered down to the members of the commission itself. <clears throat> and as part of the King Crane Commission, William Yale, so the technical advisor, submitted his own minority plan in August 1919 that rejected the main kind of majority plan of the King Crane Commission. It rejected the unification of Greater Syria and it argued against the ability of Emir Faisal, so the son of uh, Hussein ibn Ali, to hold a leadership position within a united Syria. I think a little bit over a thousand petitions from Syria favored Faisal having this, this kind of emirship. And what Yale's reasoning for this minority position was that, for instance, first a separate Christian Mount Lebanon would act, had to be created to act as a civilizing influence on the Arab Muslims. And he also saw a separate Jewish homeland acting as a civilizing influence for Palestine. So Yale, again, was very much of the idea that there had to be some kind of Christian or white civilizing influences within the final makeup of the post-war settlement for, for greater Syria, for it to actually work, for the Arab Muslim population to actually successfully come to self-administration or come to self-rule. <clears throat> Um, I may skip a bit. I don't want to run out of time. Okay, I'm um, I'll give you a five-minute warning. Okay, perfect. Okay. At the same time, I think, um, or maybe I'll, I'll say something else. As something that Laurie Allen has noted in earlier work, emotion plays a significant role in directing these, these investigative commissions, including in directing the methodology of the King Crane Commission as it undertook its task to ascertain the desires of the population of greater Syria. And in fact, the King Crane Commission, and this is something that, that Laurie's earlier work argues, or an article recently argues, sought and examined the nationalist enthusiasms and the nationalist feelings of the population. And I think it's interesting to kind of juxtapose the commission's findings on nationalist feelings with other accounts nearer about the same time as, um, <clears throat> as this. One being the first-hand account of the Palestinian Arabs' nationalist feelings about a decade before uh, by a Russian Zionist school teacher by the name of Yitzhak Epstein. So Epstein, 
Zionist coming to Palestine, who published his thoughts on the Arabs' kind of nationalist attachments to, to the land in Palestine, made links between the emotions and the potential for nationalist identity formation, and made links between emotion and race. So quite the opposite of what Yale on the commission would later argue, that the Arabs' emotional attachment to their villages meant they couldn't be self-governing. Yitzhak Epstein in 1905 claimed that this emotional attachment of Arabs in Palestine, but he probably also thought it for the rest of Syria, to their villages and to their land would lead to a nationalist uprising if that was interfered with. <clears throat> so Epstein's remedy, again, a little bit earlier, was also that self-determination to bring the Arabs into modernity had to happen in a way that would dissuade them from evoking their national emotional attachment to their land and to their villages. <clears throat> That's just a little bit, bit of an aside, kind of this longer thinking about civilizing missions, specifically in Palestine and, and the rest of Syria. And it did continue through to the arrival of the commission to Palestine. At the time that the commission, or just before the commission arrived, <clears throat> the British military government in Palestine stressed that the very idea of a post-war settlement that would include the mandates, right? So the commission already knew that there was this system of mandates set up. Uh, again, they were trying to find out who should be the mandatory appointed to the region, whether the British, the French, or the, the Americans. So the British military government in Palestine stressed that this idea had to be made very clear to the communities that were sending delegations to the commission, and that the communities could not demand full independence. That's what the British argued. They thought that these demands for full independence would simply not be accepted by the League of Nations. So they tried to make clear to the kind of local interlocutors on the ground to stress to the delegations not to, not to make these um, demands because they would be in vain. The British were very much of the opinion that they would be in vain because they would be seen as irrational, as emotional, and as representative of an Islamic fanaticism. They would also be seen, according to the British, as demands from the Arab educated intellectuals, the ex-Turkish army officers, who would only use these demands for independence to stamp out any notions of democracy that would have a role for the fellaheen or for the peasants. At the same time that the military governor of Palestine uh, was making this, this argument that this idea of independence should not be broke, uh, brought up, he sent out directives to warn the rest of Palestine's British governors who were in place there by 1919 that the indigenous population may hold, quote, fanatical demonstrations against other communities not in line with their views, end quote, which was likely a reference to Zionist immigrants. So in terms of emotion, the British military government in Palestine at the time only allowed the King Crane Commission to enter Palestine and to receive delegations from its communities because the government had this perception that otherwise emotion would take over and this fanatical kind of outrage would break out. The chief administrator, General Money, believed 
that an armed insurrection in Palestine would be imminent if the King Crane Commission were somehow barred from actually speaking to its inhabitants. The governor saw these fanatical emotions of Palestine's Muslim population as supportive of his fears that this insurrection could then spread to the rest of greater Syria and into Mesopotamia or into what becomes Iraq. Similarly, by June of 1919, once the commission is, is making its way into Palestine, another military official wrote um, that the Muslim Christian society in Jerusalem was already speaking of a complete revolution if independence were not granted for Palestine. <clears throat> So here too, I think it's important, and I'll, I'll end with this, to consider that the British officials felt that the only way to temper the emotions of the Palestinians, and by extent the rest of Greater Syria, was to allow the commission to enter and to speak with the Arab delegations. And in this kind of civilizing mission treatment of the population of the region by both Yitzhak Epstein earlier, the commission, uh, the British officials, perhaps also Wilson himself, it is this idea that nationalist emotions mattered. And they also reinforced the European and American belief in the cultural inferiority of the population and its unpreparedness for self-rule. <clears throat> now, the questions that I have after this is what does this all tell us or what does this all help us understand to put the King Crane Commission into this other context? And that's sort of what I'm grappling with and maybe we can talk about later on in the question and answer is aside from historicizing this context of civilizing missions and uh, racial ideologies mixed with liberalism and cultural inferiority ideas, does this tell us something else about the nature of the King Crane Commission? Or does it tell us something as to why the King Crane Commission's report was never really taken on board by anyone and was in fact kind of pushed under the rug a little bit and disappeared from the public view for a number of years? Um, <clears throat> the last thing maybe I'll say is that the King Crane Commission did endorse a process immediately after the war, which becomes much more widespread, which is diverting sort of nationalists uh, revolt into constitutional channels. And this is something that I think Laurie touched on quite well, that the notion of legalism and constitutional ways to go about demanding certain rights is very much emboldened by the mission of the King Crane Commission. And I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think we're really getting now a, a broader understanding of how the King Crane Commission fit into all the... Mm. Western um, various ideologies, um, which I think are often still held today, but we'll leave that for later discussion. Um, and then I'd just like to make an, an announcement. Uh, this event uh, is taking place uh, very kindly with the cooperation of the London Middle East Institute, which is the building that we're in. Um, and I've, I've just learned from the director, uh, Hassan Hakimian, that he's going to be retired. Actually, academics don't retire. They just leave their post. Retiring from SOAS uh, in the fall. And the Middle East Institute will no longer be the London Middle East Institute, but it's probably become the SOAS Middle East Institute um, as being, uh, it's kind of imperialism again, as being drawn into the empire uh, of the university rather than maintaining that kind of element of independence. So a very big thanks to the to, to Hassan and to the Middle East Institute. Um.
So now we'll move to, to part two, if I can put it that way, and uh, uh, we'll start with, with James Barr, uh, who will, I think, now give us a sense of real skullduggery that was taking place in the region uh, between the British and the French, and I think carried on way past 1919, but uh, this is our, our focus. Um, as you know, James is, is a historian, and I, probably the book that you know the best is uh, a book that the title just was you know, grabbed everyone's imagination, A Line in the Sand, uh, Britain, France, and the Struggle that Shaped the Middle East. I'm sure most of you have read it, or at least you know the book. And I didn't know about your more recent book, uh, Lords of the Desert, Britain Struggled with America to Dominate the Middle East. It's, always, uh, it's the same words, just in a different order. Different <laughs> order, okay. So, James, I'll hand over to you. Um, I'm looking at the Anglo-French rivalry uh, in the region during World War One. Great. Um, thank you, Dawn. Uh, thank you um, to the London Middle East Institute. Thank you, CBRL. Thank you, James. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, yes, I'm going to do talk a bit about uh, Anglo-French rivalry, uh, which I think was really, you know, stripping away the more high-minded reasons why the, the King Crane Commission happened. Uh, ultimately, it, it happened because of a big argument in a room on the 20th of March 1919, and, and the Commission was a result of that. And that uh, argument was fundamentally about Britain and France's inability to agree over what should happen to the Middle East. Uh, and I think that the, the, the Commission, the more, I, the more I think, and I, my views on this are still unformed, and I'm looking forward to the, the discussion afterwards, but... I am increasingly of the view this was a can-kicking exercise. Uh, the, there were high-minded motives, and it sounded high-minded, high but fundamentally on that day, uh, the, the, the aim was to buy some time and to defer a, a difficult decision for all concerned. Uh, but in many ways, it, it, so in that respect, in some ways, it resembles the Sykes-Picot agreement, or at least the motives for it are actually quite similar. And I'm going to talk a bit about Sykes-Picot and, and, and the sort of the, the background to, to everything that happened in Paris in, in 1919. Everyone knows the story. I told you at the beginning of the book about Sykes arriving in Downing Street in, in December 1915. Someone who had uh, a few sheets of paper in his hand, three or four. Uh, I've seen the photocopy of them. I, don't think, I haven't seen the originals. I think they're in Hull. But the photocopy is in Oxford, and, and probably the square map of the Middle East that came from the War Office, um, which eventually the Sykes-Picot Agreement was drawn on, something like that anyway. And we know that because in the minutes of the meeting are unusually actually rather um, uh, illuminating. Most minutes of most meetings aim to cover up discord or um, make things sound as bland as possible. But the minutes of this meeting describe Sykes saying, I would like to draw a line between the E of Acre and the last K in Kirkuk. You all know that phrase. Uh, but of course, that shows us that there must have been a map somewhere in that room as he said it. And to the cabinet, who were worried about many, many other things, cites his arrival as sort of the appearance that he was a man who understood the, the problem with the French, which seemed rather an arcane one. Uh, and it seemed to be way off the event. After all, this was, this was something that, that had grown up out of Britain's decision to try and end the war in the East by capturing um, Constantinople through an invasion of Gallipoli. And of course Gallipoli had been a disaster by December 1915, that was going nowhere, and yet the sort of, the, the kind of rap, the, the, the uh, ramifications of this rumbled on. 
French, uh, with this uh, disagreement with the French. So, so here was Sykes, he looked like he had a plan, and, and they were very pleased to delegate the job of fixing it to him and them. Just very quickly to recap, what, what were those interests? What, what were the two sides uh, concerned about? Well, I mean, the reason why this, this issue had to be dealt with by the cabinet was that they were very aware that we, had, that we the British, had almost gone to war with the French over Fashoda on the Upper Nile um, 17 years earlier, 16 years earlier. And, uh, uh, and, and that was what gave this, this, this sort of a kind of political um, salience, if you like. Uh, and of course that was over Egypt, that was uh, the French trying to get control of the Upper Nile so that they could, um, they could essentially force the British out of Egypt, so that's what they hoped to do. And that led, first of all, to the Entente Cordiale in 1904, and then um, to an agreement between Britain and France in 1912, where Britain essentially disclaimed any interest in Syria with the French, uh, assuming that that meant that they had a, a free pass there. Uh, that agreement had probably been uh, sparked by the fact that people like Sykes, who had, of course, rather famously gone uh, repeatedly to that part of the world, had attracted French attention. The French were very aware that British officials were touring around, there were people like Gertrude Bell and, and Sykes uh, in the region taking a, a real interest in what was going on there. And yet, bizarrely, Britain's interest was not actually in Syria at all. It was actually, it was, it was Syria's position in the world. It was all about the fact that Syria lay between the Mediterranean and the, the route to India. And, and I think that's the, the, the crucial uh, thing about trying to understand Sykes-Picot is that journey that Sykes made down the Euphrates. Uh, before the war, where he started in Aleppo and he went to Raqqa and to Fallujah and then eventually down to Basra. And, and if, you, if you like, if you can imagine the Sykes-Picot map, the diagonal line, that E of Acre to K of Kirkuk line, pretty much bisects the Euphrates at one point, um, at the perpendicular, I think, roughly. Uh, that was, in Sykes's mind, he was creating a cordon of of British country that, that um, ran across the land route between uh, West and East. The French interest, interest on the other hand was much, much more wide ranging. It was, uh, there was a desire to get a toehold in the East of the Mediterranean. Of course, it was, uh, it was also cultural. It was the legacy of the Crusades that had been burnished by a series of French historians in the 19th century. And you, you only have to think of the, um, those wonderful uh, engravings by Doré uh, of the Crusades to understand the sort of um, the way in which that that had come back in the French imagination, and the Crusades, although the, uh, the French imperialists made great play of this, had left this long uh, this sort of uh, footprint, if you like, of schools that were run by the French, which were much better than the Ottoman state schools, um, religious institutions, and, and, and so on. Uh, Pichon, the the, the French. Um, uh, for, uh, foreign minister thought there were about fifty thousand French children being educated in in uh, French uh, Syria. Sorry, uh, well, children in the Ottoman Empire being educated in French schools by the end of the Second World War, by the end of the First World War. Sorry, I'll get that out right in a bit. In a bit, um, the French also had big interests in Ottoman infrastructure because, as the British had pulled out um, when the Ottomans defaulted in the eighteen seventies, the French had come in, and so there were. Um, big French interests in the railways and, uh, and ports and, and uh, things like electric lighting. 
Sykes-Picot arise, uh, arose out of um, French suspicions about what Britain was interested in in that part of the world, and uh, chiefly, or raised by the fact that the initial British plan to attack Gallipoli had been a double-pronged one. It had been an attack on Gallipoli and also an attack on Alexandres at modern Iskanderun, uh, at the point where Turkey and Syria meet. And uh, that was very much that sort of I mean, territory where there were a lot of Armenians, and the French sort of saw that as some sort of British imperial... Um, uh, plot, if you like. And they weren't far wrong, because certainly the British did appreciate that that was the most important deep water port at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And people like Lawrence fully understood that that's why Britain should want to, to take it over after the war. Uh, but they got more of an idea when Sykes, who'd been on the committee that had been set up to, to sort of um, consider rather pre prematurely the, the demise of the Ottomans, went through Cairo on his way to, to talk to the government of India in the summer of 1915. And for reasons that I still don't really understand, he, he talked very, very openly about what the British plan was to the French. And the French were very alarmed by Sykes's... He started talking about the idea of a, a railway linking the head of the Persian Gulf to, uh, um, to the um, eastern Mediterranean seaboard. And, and, and that would be run by Britain on British land. And that rang alarm bells with the French. And of course, the French had also, uh, at that moment, or very, very soon after that, got wind of the Hussein McMahon correspondence. So there was something going on. They didn't know what it was, but they knew there had been contact between the two sides. But their assumption was that Britain would turn down whatever it was that uh, Hussein had demanded, which, of course, was wrong. Uh, and that was um, that brought Georges Picot uh, to, to London in the uh, autumn of 1915. I don't know much about him, um, but what I do know is that he joined the Quai d'Orsay in 1898, the same year as Fashoda. And I think that's a key moment, because if you imagine starting any job as a, a young person, um, you remember that, that bit um, fairly vividly, or certainly I do. And the year that he arrived there would have been dominated by that particular crisis. And he took away from that the, the feeling that France had caved in far, far too easily to the British, and that it was um, necessary, in the words of one British diplomat, to to claim everything and to give nothing became his strategy. So he arrived with fairly far-reaching demands and, and that precipitated the crisis that brought Sykes into Downing Street and, and with his plan. Now, the actual business of the negotiation which followed, because Sykes and I, I will be able to deal, deal with this with George Pico, just let me at it, uh, was I think very simple because neither of those two men had great uh, interest in, in the people whose land they were, were dividing up. Uh, you only have to think of what Georges Pico had done when he left the consulate in, uh, at the outbreak of war in 1914, where he just left the files and, of course, essentially condemned a lot of the consulate's contacts to death. Uh, and then Sykes' own views of the, uh, of the Arabs, which were um, uh, very Orientalist, uh, to realise that they didn't worry too much about what, what, what the fate of the people was going to be. This was very much more about uh, dealing with an agreement that threatened the Entente Cordiale, and I think that's the other crucial thing. The Sykes-Picot agreement was never really intended to be a blueprint for the Middle East, uh, although it's, it sort of became one. Uh, and in that respect, uh, the distinction between the, the coloured areas on the map, so you imagine the, the, the map has got five areas on it. It has a red and a blue area, which would be under British and French control, respectively, Areas A and B, which are the hinterland, the inland bit, uh, under Arab control, but with, with uh, some degree of support or, or protection, depending on whose translation you, you read, um, by the 
colonial powers, and then, of course, Palestine as the, the fifth part. Uh, but these, this distinction was entirely academic. It was done because the British had to uh, reconcile uh, Sykes-Picot with, with Hussein McMahon and try to sort of say that they paid lip service to it. Uh, but if you read stuff from the time, and I'm thinking in particular of Lord Curzon's lecture in Oxford in 1907 or 08, it's the Romanist lecture, when he does a great lecture about frontiers, which I'd really recommend if you've not read it. Uh, and he says this, it's, uh, it says, every occupation or conquest on a coast may be said to carry with it the presumption of a further inland claim. It was, he said, a doctrine as old as humanity itself. So in other words, what he's saying is that these red and the blue areas, which are on the coasts of the, the Sykes-Picot area, essentially that, that is saying that the inland area belongs to those those things. And anyone looking at, any Westerner looking at that map at that time in government would have appreciated that fact that the, the, the distinction was, um, yeah, cosmetic, best. Um, now, of course, Sykes, the other thing that the minutes of that meeting in 1915 show is that Sykes set himself the job of, of creating a belt of English-controlled country across the Middle East. That was the phrase he used. Uh, but, of course, he failed. Be he failed because of Palestine, because the two men couldn't agree on that. And, of course, that was going to be uh, uh, the biggest issue uh, after that, because it awoke two concerns immediately. One was strategic. He had failed to create the cordon that he had promised he would. And the second was, what would be the reaction of the Zionists? And not in uh, line with sand, something I've discovered or realised more recently, uh, was the reaction of the Director of Naval Intelligence, uh, who said that the deal would be opposed by, quotes, the Jewish interests throughout the world. Uh, this opposition, he continued, might be partly placated by the status proposed for the brown area, that's Palestine, but it, might, it may not be wholly or indeed very largely placated. Uh, and I think the big question here was uh, about credit, it was the issue of credit, because if you read anything from the time, and of course this is all rather live at the moment with um, Jeremy Corbyn's comments about Hobson, uh, that you know, there was a, a belief that uh, Jewish control of financial centres, that was an extremely widely held belief, that was not at all controversial at that time, and in fact of course um, a Jewish lobby had stopped the Tsarist government raising money on Wall Street I think before the war, so uh, fear of would this upset the Zionists was a big issue. And that was um, probably what made Sykes so worried. And we get a little glimpse of Sykes's worry because in, he gives a speech in Parliament in, uh, uh, in February 1916, and he sort of talks about how he's under, under attack from all sides. But he can't say why he's under attack. Because of course, Sykes-Picot is secret, but he, he kind of he wails about, uh, well, wails, but he, he complains about people complaining about what he's done behind the scenes. That gave an opportunity for Herbert Samuel because he had written a memorandum a year earlier which had sunk without trace at the time, but he, uh, this was promoting the idea of British backing for a, uh, for a Jewish state in Palestine. Herbert served up the, the memorandum again and sort of said to Sykes, this could solve your problem. Sykes read it and appreciated instantly that it very much did solve his problem. So at that point, Sykes became convinced that the Jews would be the, the next stop on, on Britain's sort of imperial progress through the Middle East. Uh, and he would make efforts now to, uh, to, uh, to get their support. And he tried to persuade Georges Picot of this as well. They both went together to St. Petersburg, of course, to get the, the third part of the, the, the Entente, the, the Russians, to on side with the, the agreement. And uh, Georges Picot 
thought it was a mad idea, so did diplomats at the Quai d'Orsay. So it was left to the British on their own to pursue this, this plan. But the French really didn't see why, why there was any need to, to pursue Zionist support. What the French did do, realising that Palestine was also not, that the outcome for Palestine in the deal was not to their liking, was stayed behind after Sykes had gone, or the French ambassador after Sykes and Pico had gone, tried to get the Russians on board to rewrite the deal. If they got to the end of the war, <coughs> the plan was that the French, with Russian support, were going to get Palestine. So there was um, great sort of continuing rivalry over that. And uh, you see, uh, you can sort of see this, this change coming up. Uh, through 1916, clearly there's the arrival of uh, Lloyd George as Prime Minister. Uh, and then there's a, a breakfast that he and Sykes had together on the 3rd of April. And that was a, a is a particularly uh, timely day for those two men to meet, because the day before Woodrow Wilson had made his big attack on uh, quotes, the, the little groups of ambitious men who were accustomed to use their fellow men as pawns and tools. So generally a sort of curse on all imperialism. And uh, Lloyd George over breakfast tells Sykes the importance of not prejudicing the Zionist movement and the possibility of its development under British auspices uh, because the Jews, quotes, might be able to render us more assistance than the Arabs. Uh, so the message had not got through at that point to, to London about um, the sort of the, the, what Wilsonianism, uh, what, what Wilsonianism, Wilsonianism meant. Um, and that led anyway to the Balfour Declaration, as, as you well know. And of course, that moment in Jerusalem, uh, described by Lawrence of Arabia after Allenby's uh, entrance on foot when Georges Picot says, now when are we going to turn this over to the international administration that, uh, that we've both agreed to? And Allenby splutters and goes puce and says, well, at the moment, military exigencies and so on, we can't do anything. So manages to, again, to kick the can down the road a bit. Uh, and put off this moment. But Balfour, the Balfour Declaration was, of course, a play to, uh, to try to keep Russia in the war. It was an attempt to um, mollify, I suppose, American criticism of British imperialism, but it was also done with the timing of the entry uh, to Jerusalem in, in mind, I'm sure, the fact that Jerusalem would, would presently be, be taken and the fact that this Anglo-American issue was going to come to the surface once again. Once you get to the end of the war, uh, and once the French had sort of seen the efforts that Lawrence had made to try to overturn the, the arrangement, the, the agreement, uh, the situation is essentially everything that follows can be summarised by the fact that the French are delighted with what they've got. Uh, and I always I make the joke, I'm not sure how seriously one should, but if you look at the map of Sykes-Picot, the, the fascinating detail at the bottom right-hand corner is the fact that Georges Picot signed in black ink, very firmly, uh, Sykes signed off in, in pencil and uh, it might just be that Sykes signed it first and felt that he better not assume that everything was whatever but it's a, it, it, in a way it is a perfect illustration of the different views of those two sides. The French were very happy with what they'd wrung out of the British uh, Georges Picot very pleased with his tactics uh, Sykes clearly already by May um, knowing that there were plenty of British opponents to this and probably rather wishing that it didn't look the way it did uh, but so the French were very keen to, to nail Britain down, um, the British desperate to rewrite this agreement, not least because they had facts on the ground in terms of British troops in, in Syria uh, and Palestine and also in Iraq, 
and, and by the end of the war in Mosul, thanks to a, um, what one of them called a late effort to score before the whistle went. Um, and, uh, and the two men, Clemenceau and Lloyd George, met in December, 1st of December 1918, and Clemenceau needs Lloyd George's support to get Alsace-Lorraine back. He's very conscious that this is going to be an issue. How's he going to get it? He's therefore there in, in a kind of giving mood, and he says famously, tell me what you want. And Lloyd George says, I want Mosul. You shall have it. Anything else? Yes, I want Jerusalem too. And also said, yes, you can have it as well. And that, therefore, fixed uh, Britain's concern about the deal, because by the end of the war, the, the British had realised that Sykes had managed to give uh, Georges Picot uh, you know, the major oil-bearing region of northern Iraq. That was not something that they wanted, not least because they could, because at that point, Britain's oil mostly came from the United States, all came from the United States. And the tenor of Wilson's attitude towards the British Empire was such that the British wanted some more independent sources of oil. That was why they needed northern Iraq by the end of the war. Uh, but the, the, the question of Syria was left out of that discussion. And the assumption, of course, would be that if Lloyd George got what he wanted, he would presumably let the French have Syria. But that was not at all, at all clear. And preemptively, the French launched a big campaign uh, to get uh, the Syrian Lebanese diaspora around the world uh, to petition the, the peace conference to say that Syria should go to the French. So there were petitions coming from all over the place. One petition even from the, the Yucatan Peninsula uh, in Central America. And the aim was to put pressure on, on the delegates. According to Le Matin, 600,000 Syrians asked the peace conference, quotes, to put France in charge of the reconstruction of Syria. And the British could sense what was happening. And so uh, Lawrence Arabia's boss, um, Gilbert Clayton, in Damascus as the chief political officer at that point, recommended relaxing censorship to enable those holding opposite views to the French, whose press and other propagandistic activity is increasingly active, to state them in moderation. In moderation is quite important because, uh, of course, in, in uh, uh, taking the lid off the kettle, if you like, the British created something that in the end they regretted very profoundly. Uh, and Clemenceau warned the, the British, warned Arthur Balfour back in Paris, that the, Syria was flooded with British agents carrying on an anti-French propaganda, while the French had nobody there. The French tried to keep Faisal out of the conference, but the British insisted that he was involved. And then once Faisal had spoken, they, uh, in line with uh, Shukri Ghanem, the man that they put up to, to put the case for a French Syria, they accused Faisal of having sort of pan-Islamic um, uh, ambitions, which they presumably... Uh, quite rightly thought was the best way to turn British public opinion against Faisal in the Middle East, given how um, something like, say, John Buchan's Green Mantle had raised the kind of idea of, of pan-Islam and the whole question of the jihad during the war. Where are we? Um, the, 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 meanwhile, the imperialists, the Comité de l'Asie Française, uh, were kind of, I suppose, very well worried about Clemenceau, whose own views uh, on imperialism were very kind of um, uh, sort of unbothered. And they said to him, we will no longer accept any diminution of our st situation in the world. And they also claimed, this is a great quote, France had an uncontestable right, as yet unsatisfied, to impose our culture. The British managed to get hold of a version of that memorandum from a, what they called a very secret source. So there was all kinds of skullduggery 
going on at the conference, probably by the French as well, but by certainly by the British, to get hold of the other side's papers in order to work out what was going to be said and, and to marshal the arguments against that in, in the conference. I'd love to see a great book on that. That would be um, really good. I don't think anyone's written it yet. Uh, but by February, by mid-February, it's very clear that the two issues that, that, that were going to be difficult in the conference were the Rhineland and Syria was the other, the other one. And uh, on the 15th of February, the French um, confirmed the session of, of Mosul and Palestine, but they made it contingent on uh, that they would take over Syria and that there would be a share in the oil. Well, the, um, the British were happy to share the oil. Uh, or willing to share the oil, perhaps a better, better way of put, putting it. But again, on Syria, there was still this concern, and I'll try and come back to that in a minute. Uh, so the British, the British then, I suppose, then started to quibble over what Syria was, and they tried to reduce the size of, essentially, uh, what Sykes had, had given over to uh, Georges Picot in, in uh, 1916. Uh, and they, they said, for example, that Tadmor Palmyra should be part of uh, Iraq. So they were pushing the boundary of of Syria, and you can see some. I found a map recently, and I just don't really understand it. But it was among Lord George's papers, which suggests that at one point the British really interpreted Syria to be, in terms of, in terms of an area that might be run by anybody else, to be really just the strip uh, running up uh, the, the the Damascus to Aleppo line, not east of that, but that 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 an Arab state would would go right up into that area. Uh, so, so that was sort of that was that was February. Uh, Dawn, you mentioned Howard Bliss in your remarks at the beginning, which I'm sort of slightly uh, repeating in some ways. But uh, it's not clear to me exactly where the idea of the commission, the King Crane Commission, came from. But we know that it's certainly on fourth of March that Bliss first approached the British about it and said that the Allies had to consult the people. And also amongst Lloyd George, George's papers in uh, the Parliamentary Archive which are well worth a read, uh, there is his briefing note for the 20th of March meeting, 20th of March. This is the big acrimonious meeting that I mentioned at the beginning. And it proposed a French man, so he had a, a list of four options, or at least this is what my notes say. If you're gonna, you might want to go back and, um, and look at it yourself, but, oh gosh, okay, five minutes. Um, I've gone on far too long. Uh, so, but, um, so, the, but he went in, the commission idea was number three, but he did at least go in with the idea of the commission already on there. So the idea of the commission didn't come as a complete surprise to him, and therefore it was not what he wanted. He wanted the Americans to accept a mandate on the spot, but clearly that was not what Wilson was willing to do. Uh, so, and then failing that, interestingly, number, point number four was something that he called the Milner map solution. I would love to know what that looked like, uh, and I don't. The French said yes, probably, uh, to, they thought that it would embarrass the British because, of course, Wilson had said that he'd send a commission both to, uh, to Mesopotamia and to Syria to find out what the people wanted. I think that the British, uh, and then they also thought that essentially this was not going to be where the decision was sorted out. It would be sorted out in London, uh, in, in Paris, rather. Uh, and the British knew that they would end up clearing up any kind of problem that there was between the Arabs and the French. Uh, so they uh, were worried about an, um, an Arab-French war. They, I think they saw the commission as a way of just pushing the, the issue a little way away. And that's exactly what Gertrude Bell said. It is nothing but a way of deferring the solution of an exceedingly difficult problem, which the necessary delay will tend to make more difficult still. Now, there's been uh, chatter about the uh, chatter um, 
um, about, well, I'm sure Andrew's going to come on to um, what happened with the, the, the Commission itself, so I shan't go on too long about that. But the key thing was then the British sort of change of mind. Having accepted this as, as a possibility, they then had a very strong pushback from Allenby, uh, saying this was a mad idea. He told um, London, I don't believe that you or the French know what dangerous stuff you are playing with. And uh, the British also then realised that whatever, having thought that perhaps the Commission could do something to Syria, they then realised that whatever happened, it would have a sort of infectious result in Iraq, that whatever happened, so, so whatever outcome, whether it was the outcome they wanted in Syria, which was ideally an Arab state, that was going to, that was going to blow back straight into Iraq, where the government of India wanted um, a, a British state, essentially. Uh, and London increasingly of the view as well. So that changed their attitude um, to the Commission. The British Commissioners were supposed to be McMahon and, uh, and Hogarth, I think. I don't know if, that's, uh, if there's any other names. Toynbee. Toynbee. Oh, OK. Yeah, there was at least the help and the advisor at the bank. OK. Um, and, and so they, they pulled out. Uh, once the Commission arrived, the French interest was just to undermine it. Um, the British one was damage limitations, so Clayton again went in very hard speaking to William Yale to tell him that, uh, that, uh, that he should be very careful what he did because the place was a tinderbox and uh, Lauren, you mentioned that, didn't you, that, that basically they had just got intelligence about sort of the problems in Jerusalem, um, which were very important. And uh, my dear stories, I've got stock coming up now. Uh, and, and, and the well, the the the, um, the French basically tried to try to um, gerrymander, well not gerrymander the result, but tried to influence the result. Something that the commissioners, of course, picked up on and, and reacted very strongly against. Yale, when he got um, to Constantinople, wrote a uh, scathing criticism of the British. He'd seen uh, um, Damascus at the end of the war. He felt that the British had, there had been some kind of outside influence on politics there. After the war, he blamed the British. And I'll finish with the quote um, from uh, Cornwallis, one of Lawrence's mates. Uh, you are correct, Yale. There has been an anti-French propaganda campaign, but we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, James. I, I think we're going to be emerging with lots of questions uh, uh, um, Shortly. So let me move on to our, our last speaker. Do you, do you need to use this? Uh, so change yeah, places. Okay. okay. So our, our last presentation today will be by uh, Andrew Patrick, uh, looking at the after the afterlife of the King Crane Commission report. Andrew is uh, assistant professor of history at Tennessee State University, Nashville, Tennessee. Place I've never been to, but I'd love to visit. Um, however, Andrew did his PhD here in the UK, didn't you, at the yes. University of Manchester? And uh, his book, uh, The Forgotten Middle East Initiative, The King Crane Commission of 1919, um, published just a couple of years ago, uh, really thorough, excellent reading. Uh, but if you have high blood pressure, you should make sure you've taken all your tablets before you get into it. Um, so I will hand over to Yes, uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, thank you to SOAS and CBRL and, uh, uh, and to um, Maggie and Rachel and Don for organizing this, and James, this is great. 
I'm going to say something a little different here because I'm giving a talk tonight that's going to be more specifically on what was happening uh, in the King Crane Commission and with the King Crane Commission and, and, and how they sort of, um, they were, well, you know what, I won't go there. I'm saying something totally different um, right now. Yes, I have time. But I think it's a, it's a good point um, because at 6.15 you will be giving another talk. Yes. Uh, so we have building. here um, the Afterlife of the King Crane Commission Report. For those of you um, who are grad students, you'll have to do a literature review at some point. This is sort of a literature review um, of sorts on uh, what people said about the King Crane Commission. And when I was a grad student uh, 15 years now, 13 years ago, uh, I just started reading every book I could on the uh, on the um, the Middle East in general, anything that might mention the King Crane Commission, and I found about 300 references to it of various sorts. And of course, there were then burgeoning references throughout websites and and in newspaper articles and whatnot. Let's see if this is working. Uh, okay, so what I want to talk about here is um, what happened to the report afterwards. Uh, and just at the beginning, I want to talk about, you know, sort of physically what happened to it and how it came into the public eye um, for the first time. And this is a, uh, a not particularly uh, great um, facsimile of the uh, New York Times paper the day it was published. Um, and we'll come talking, we'll talk about this in a second. Oops, sorry. Don't want that. I want that. There. Uh, and so it was delivered to the White House on the 27th of September, 1919, by the uh, Commission Secretary, Donald Brody. Uh, and those of you who know uh, US history at this point, Wilson was wandering the country. Uh, he was uh, trying to fight to get the Treaty of Versailles uh, approved. Um, and uh, he became sick on this journey in Colorado. He was rushed back to uh, the DC, and he had a stroke on October 2nd. He likely never read uh, the report, um, probably did not. It sat on, on a shelf somewhere. Uh, we don't really know what happened to it exactly. It was at the White House. They found a clean report, a copy of it in the 1930s in the State Department. Um, but they would have delivered more than one copy, I would assume. We don't know what happened to it. A lot of people write that this report was suppressed. I tried to look for all this evidence, uh, any evidence I could find of this. I don't have any evidence of that. So in my book, I don't really talk about it being suppressed, but people still do say this. And we'll come back to sort of that in some way. It is, again, it's possible somebody else will find this evidence, but um, it's possible, yeah. So it was published uh, in, well, it was, Ray Standard Baker, uh, the uh, journalist and friend of the president, uh, asked, uh, or was writing a book about uh, Wilson in the early 1920s, uh, and he, asked, he was looking for the King Crane Commission report in Wilson's papers, and he couldn't find it. So he asked King and Crane, who had been very tight-lipped about the report um, ever since it, it had, uh, they, they delivered it. Uh, they asked them for a copy, and, and King and Crane said, well, we have to ask Wilson. And they asked Wilson, and Wilson says, okay. Uh, and they give it to Ray Standard Baker, who writes about it in August uh, in the New York Times. And then uh, a trade publisher gets a hold of it. Um, I've forgotten his name, but it's in this trade, this, this uh, publishing trade magazine called Editor, Editor and Publisher. And uh, he publishes the whole thing. And there's a little story there, too. But, uh, and then the New York Times actually publishes it as well in two installments in December 3rd and 4th, I believe. And so after that, it floats into the public domain. 
and it shows up uh, in various testimonies of uh, people uh, before these the committees that Laurie is, is talking about. It shows up in congressional testimonies about Zionism and things like this, um, just on occasion. But it really then floats into academia in written works. Um, and so when people write about the King Crane Commission, they, write, they basically agree on three things, and to simplify it a little bit. That this was conceived of and advocated by Faisal and by uh, the Americans, largely, and we can, uh, we can talk more about how exactly it came to be. And that story is not perfectly clear either, um, but it's closely clear. I think I have a, a pretty good idea of it, and that's in the book. Um, it did usher in a period of intense political activity in the region. This is uh, largely agreed upon. It's been discussed today, both in Istanbul and in greater Syria. But the, the Istanbul part of the journey was a bit of an afterthought. Everybody on the commission sort of or agreed with this, and then not to mention the Mesopotamia um, and any other part of the empire. And there was another commission going around at the tail end of this, the American commission going around to Eastern Anatolia called the Harbor Commission. Um, that, is, that is a different story too. Um, and people agree that the commission's findings had very little effect on um, what wound up happening. Uh, and uh, so broadly speaking, they agree this. But there is controversy beyond that. And I, I, have, uh, I split the, what people say about the um, commission into three separate sections here. There is this, which is probably the most common. The commission was prophetic, and it was accurate. It showed what the people of the region wanted. And you have this, the first major piece of the, or major piece of writing that came out with this was the, the, the George Antonius's book, The Arab Awakening. Um, the other tie that book has to the King Crane Commission was that Charles Crane funded um, And the book is dedicated to it. Uh, and then Faith Misplaced, and then uh, Rashid Khalidi, Kathleen Christensen's book. And what these, uh, what these, uh, these accounts say that uh, they say things like this, that it was disinterested, diligent, uh, wholly objective, uh, impartial. It demonstrated and discovered and reflected clear evidence of the wishes of the people, their fears, of their aspirations, and the opposition to the Zionist program. So these are just many quotes from these various sources, but they are all pretty similar. And then we have the commission as biased uh, views. And uh, this is less frequent. Um, most recently, most prominently, I would probably say Michael Oren's book, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, um, is, uh, is, is the longest mention of this uh, type of analysis. And what they say was that there was anti-Zionist prejudice. And they say that the results were predetermined they say that it was pro-Christian, interesting, and this is mostly Stuart Nee, you know, anti-Semitic accusations of anti-Semitism. I'm going to talk about some of these accusations in just a second. Uh, Pro-Arab nationalism. And it was part of a missionary conspiracy. Missionary conspiracy. Uh, and the, uh, the, the quote from, uh, from Michael Oren here is, no zealous missionary could have asked for more. Now, 
looking at Michael Oren's book um, on this, and I'll just talk about his this kind of scholarship. Uh, the, I will talk about the problems with the first kind of scholarship I was talking uh, that I referenced here. Uh, and then I'll talk about the problem with this kind of scholarship now. Let me do this because it, there, this scholarship I found the most holes in. I found the most inaccuracies in. And Michael Oren's book has many inaccuracies. Um, some factual inaccuracies, some things like, for example, Wilson claimed that King and Crane knew nothing about the region and were wholly disinterested. Uh, and Wilson did like to do this. He liked to send people to the region who knew nothing about, to a region who knew nothing about it, and they would be these blank slates. Uh, that was true of King. King had never been to greater Syria or the Ottoman lands. Uh, Michael Oren says King was well-traveled in the region. Uh, Charles Crane uh, had been to the region twice, uh, once in, I think, the 18, 1879, and once in 1911, just before the war, uh, and spent some time there. Uh, but Michael, uh, but, uh, excuse me, Charles Crane never really uh, took to the region as much as he did to Russia. He was a Russophile. Uh, he, uh, he knew Tolstoy and, and uh, Tsar Nicholas II. Uh, he loved Eastern Europe as well. He loved China. He was uh, Wilson's ambassador to China in 1920, 21, uh, and so on. Uh, he did not know that much about the Middle East, and he professed that he didn't. He didn't want to take his spot on the commission because he said he knew more about the Balkans. Charles Crane, though, is a problematic figure. I don't know if you know much about Charles Crane. He, um, the anti-Semitic accusation is Charles Crane. And Michael Warren makes this accusation. And Charles Crane, certainly in the 1930s, was a deeply anti-Semitic man. Uh, he had met with, uh, um, with, with Hitler, uh, and he has a number of quotes to his name that are pretty, um, are that, that are pretty nasty. But in, in around the World War I era, before the war in 1916, and even in 1919, he's on the record as being pro-Zionist, uh, which Oren doesn't mention. Um, and he was also this, uh, a very good friends with Louis Brandeis, and he helped get him on the Supreme Court, and he had recommended a Zionist to be the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, uh, and so on. And so Oren is absolutely correct that Crane became anti-Semitic. Uh, but at this point in his life, it was a little it a strange view. If his political opponents, opponents were Jewish, he called, he, he used nasty words for them, like Jacob, Jacob Schiff and these other major, um, uh, major bankers that, who were often at odds with Crane. Um, and, uh, but, but of course, and this is not a great defense, but he had friends who were, who were Jewish, like Brandeis and Gaddafi, you know. But so he had this weird relationship and this weird thing going on. Um, and there's more there in how he talks about their relationship with Faisal and how they were duped by Faisal and they were invited to a dinner with Faisal and made to dress up, which is all true. It's actually a very interesting little moment in the King, King Crane Commission. But uh, and then after this, he said they were they were won over. They were duped by Faisal's propaganda. And so. And there, there are other problems with this, but I do need to uh, get moving on here. These are, these, there are some more interesting, um, some more interesting uh, assessments of the commission here. And you have in this older book from the 1950s, uh, uh, Eli Kadori, who used to hang around in this area, I believe. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and in England, in this book, England and the Middle East, he talked about the King Crane Commission quite a bit. 
And he also he repeats this idea that the, that the commission was influenced by uh, Faisali propaganda, that it uh, raised hopes that it exacerbated just the problems of the region, the political divisions of the region already. Uh, and um, it, it was inconsequential in the end. And it damaged any sort of peaceful process that might have occurred in the region after the war, in the sense that by raising hopes, by raising expectations, by not solving things quickly, this caused problems. James Gelvin, relatively recently, in, uh, in an article in uh, David Lesh edited book, The Middle East in the United States, he wrote an article about this too, saying some rather interesting um, things. Uh, he said that their method of collecting data was flawed, and that uh, they had only sought opinions uh, from the most enlightened public strata of society, as in uh, their, uh, the people who sort of mirrored who they were in their own society. And that the liberal ideals being discussed by the King Crane Commission and by the people they were talking to would have been essentially foreign or far removed, as he put it, from the concerns of the vast majority of the Syrian people. And in essence, a lot of people would not totally have understood what was going on with the King Crane Commission. And he makes a point that's similar to Kadori that, uh, that a world power in diplomacy, he says, in diplomacy as in physics, a world power influences the object of its interest simply by turning its attention to it. So this same sort of, it caused this grand political moment and stirred things up and sent things on different trajectories than they might otherwise have been, might otherwise have gone. All right, so I will wrap things up. Well, not totally, it's gonna to take a little while. Um, and just to tell you what I, what I thought and what I came to um, with this, and I'm not, part of my conclusion here is, is a big chunk of my book and I'm not going to talk about that right now. But part of this conclusion um, has to do with what I think about these assessments. And so, generally speaking, I would say uh, historians have sought to characterize the commission in a particular way. The commission was prophetic and accurate. The commission was a product of pro-Arab American missionary bias and anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic prejudice. The commission was a naive reflection of American propaganda and a catalyst for future conflict. The first two, I think, are fine examples of historians sculpting the past in order to make it fit the present, in order to firmly entrench the King Crane Commission narrative as evidence in, uh, excuse me, as evidence in their preferred narrative of the modern Middle Eastern history. These scholars, some more cynically than others, have chosen an element of the commission, enlarged this element uh, to give it our interpretive primacy and often ignored the rest, abandoning uh, the nuance and complexity that should be a hallmark in the writing of history. The commission is ill-informed and provocative, the last one. Uh, this assessment nearly discards the commission as an entity worthy of analysis in itself and what was said to the commission as an entity of analysis in itself. And where I've, what I've come to with this and is that I would say historians of the King Crane Commission, they should be concerned with the validity of the testimony uh, heard and generally relied upon by commission members, which I'll we'll talk about more tonight. 
So it is true that the testimony before the commission was largely from elites whose link with the people they claim to represent is unclear and difficult to ascertain. Now I say this, and I wrote this before I heard what Lori said earlier, and there's more work to be done there. I did not get to this before I wrote the book, and so I really would like to hear more and more about this. Uh, the degree to which the opinions of these oh, sorry, did I get? Yeah, no, the degree to which the opinions of these elites uh, claim to uh, represented their constituents is unknowable in most cases. Maybe not. And it's perhaps a moot point to begin with because the vast majority of their constituents would likely have had little knowledge of the matters being discussed. I'm sort of agreeing with Gelvin at this point, but I'd like to be proved wrong. It is also true that many of these elites had agreed to give prescribed testimony uh, to the commission, which most often came in the form of the Damascus program, which hasn't been discussed much here today. I'll talk about it tonight, um, but this is the uh, the document that came out of the Damascus Congress or the, the Syrian Congress, however you say it, in late July or late June, early July um, of 1919. Uh, and, there, and I'll talk about this a little more tonight, but it's a fairly impressive uh, document, particularly because of how many people it corralled into this Congress and, and the, uh, the actual compromise that it was. And there's more really good work on this going on right now. Elizabeth Thompson, in particular, is writing, um, is writing a book um, approximately about this right now. Um, and so because a lot of them repeated the Damascus program to the King Crane Commission, uh, many people have argued that this gave it all an appearance of just doing the bidding of a centralized propaganda. This is a Faisali propaganda. And this is, I think, where, where I've come to, which I, why I don't really like this point um, so much that a number of people made, that I'd say that although the testimony um, that the commission received was suffused with discourses promulgated by liberal nationalist elites, the people they interviewed were hardly dominated by these elites. And this is an important point that I'll again come to later tonight. Instead, these nationalist elites were just a vocal new faction in the region who managed to convince most other more traditional regional elites that their suggested testimony would most effectively persuade the commissioners to recommend independence for the region, or at least obtain the best possible status. It is important to note uh, that these other regional elites generally, um, or that, sorry, is even though there appears to have been a few cases of forceful coercion, and there were in Aleppo. They heard about this, where people were um, told uh, to either testify in a certain way or change their testimony in, in a case or two, but very few. But it seems like likely that most of these people made calculated political decisions to go along with the compromise represented in the Damascus program. To argue otherwise denies the people of the region an agency that they obviously possess. If they did not possess such an agency, the results of the interviews would likely have been far uh, more unanimous than they were. And it is interesting that in Palestine, before the Syrian Congress, when, when the uh, King Crane Commission landed in Palestine, there, were, there was a lot more, um, well, there was more diversity in testimony than there was in greater Syria, if you look at it. Um, another thing in Palestine um, was that Faisal was barely mentioned by people in Palestine. It was barely mentioned by the people in Palestine. Whereas once they got to greater Syria, partly because the Damascus program said Faisal should be the leader, uh, then it showed up in most of the testimony. Uh, 
Um, but in Palestine, a lot of people said, we don't really know who Faisal is, except he went to the peace conference in Armenia. So I think that we do need to value what was said to the King Crane Commission. Maybe not uncritically, like a number of people have done. But we need to figure out what, it, what was said to them and how that came to be. And I think that's the work that's happening right now by Lori, and like I said, Elizabeth Thompson. So the second part of the King Crane Commission um, that I think historians should be concerned about, and this is mostly what my book does, uh, is that the role that the commission members' preconceptions play in their recommendations. And I'll talk more about that tonight. Uh, these preconceptions necessarily provided the framework in which uh, the commission members were able to comprehend the testimony they heard while in the Middle East. And the interplay between the testimony and their preconceptions provided the basis for their recommendations. I think mainly what I learned from reading through this volume of literature on the King Crane Commission, and what I think we can all learn from it, is, the, is that we need to constantly question whether or not we as scholars are sculpting the evidence to fit our deeply held political beliefs, or, or ideologies, or even theories. I think such top-down approaches often yield the type of literature that exacerbates divisions and understandings. And I think reading the King Crane Commission from the bottom up. And actually, I've forgotten my dissertation, my thesis in Manchester was entitled Reading the King Crane Commission. But if we read it from the evidence up and not from our political beliefs down, um, then I think we will understand what was going on in 1919, Greater Syria, much better than we do now. Thank you. Well, we have, we are just on time. Yeah. We've got a half an hour for questions. So may I take Chair's prerogative and ask the first question? Because it'll carry on from, your, from reading your book. Um, I was quite struck by the way in which um, the, uh, the Zionist uh, Association identified somebody and sent him in advance of uh, wherever the King Crane Commission was going to speak in order to make sure that the Arab Jews responded in a certain way. And I think, as you said, they also tried to get other opinion uh, to be shaped so that they gave similar statements to the commission. So, so that's yes, just what I want you to stuff. develop a little bit okay. more because, yeah. Yeah, so this is, uh, in the book, I go through this, and uh, coincidentally, um, CBRL paid for that research. Uh, by the okay. Way. Uh, they, I got funding from CBRL for that trip to the Central Zionist Archives. And they, they sent um, several people to the region, or used people from the region. Abraham Hamala um, was one of them, or it's, it's not proper Hebrew pronunciation. Um, he was a journalist, a teacher, and uh, the person who did the first Hebrew French dictionary, but he wandered around before the King Crane Commission to their various stops and finding, tried to find any uh, uh, Jews in any city and tried to make sure that they were going to say pro-Zionist things and a specific type of pro-Zionist things too. Uh, and this, he was very successful at, broadly speaking, in Palestine. Uh, and, but it got much harder when he went north. Many of the Jewish communities in Aleppo and Damascus 
started um, questioning why they should say anything about this and how this would harm their standings and their, and their standing in their communities. And he says some very quiet things, like there may have been bribery involved. It's hard to say how he got these people to at least not be anti-Zionist. Um, and uh, so he, it, it was something that was very successful. None of the Jewish groups were, um, came to the King Crane Commission as anti-Zionist, um, whereas if he hadn't done this, it's conceivable some of them would at least said, we don't want anything to do with that. And that's largely what a couple of them did wind up saying, but they're not opposed to it. Um, and so this was interesting. There were also the Zionist, various Zionist agents trying to agitate in, in a number of ways. Uh, Chaim Kalvariski, those of you who know the region better than I do, uh, was trying to make sure that there are certain um, fellahin who would come and tell the uh, uh, commission that they were uh, very much in favor of Zionism because their land and their lots in life have been improved by the Zionist colonies they lived here. Um, so yeah, so this was, uh, uh, th this was a, um, another aspect of the King Crane Commission. That, and, that, and to be honest, there's a lot of great stuff that came out of El Mala's intelligence reports that he was, he was reporting back. Uh, it struck me a little bit, there was a similarity with the argument that was used by Lord Montague when they were arguing about the Balfour Declaration, that many of the uh, Briti of Jewish Britons, if I can put it that way, really feared that their, their assimilation within the community would be very, very negatively affected. Because I think some of the, I think I'd read before, some of the Jews in Damascus were very fearful. They were not Zionists. Yeah. They were very fearful to make any kind of a statement. Yeah. Um, it would undermine their position, because it would kind of go against the whole argument that we can have these kind of minority groups within a, within a nation. Yeah, no, I would say I mean, they, that some divisions um, in the, there's some communal divisions um, in every community, I would say, of greater Syria where there was realignment in this period. Um, things, things changed, not just because of the King Crane Commission, but it was part of it. It yeah. was very much part of it. Yes? Is these various branches of Zionism, uh, some of them came from families that are the Rothschild family who were not Jewish that converted to Judaism and we were the major family yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. They, and they, they, I mean, if this, they, they went to many different Zionists, some of the new Zionist communities that were funded by Rothschild. I mean, there's a longer story of how Zionism almost, or, or many of these colonies almost ceased to be during the war because they had been turned into cash crop colonies before the war. And with the shipping in the Mediterranean being essentially gone, they couldn't get their oranges and almonds to market. And these, these, that's what these colonies depended upon for money. And so Rothschild himself was begging Morgan, Henry Morgenthau, the American ambassador, and then eventually Standard Oil, his, his uh, business enemies, to help get money to the Zionist community, the various Zionist communities that he was funding. Um, but yes, it is true, a lot of the uh, Russian um, Jews, Zionists, were sent to Egypt uh, during the war because they were, of course, enemy combatants. Yeah, Laura, you want to add to that? No, okay. Just a question. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so there were so there was different treatment for uh, um, different uh, different Jews and different Zionists, and some English uh, Jews uh, managed to uh, stay in the empire during uh, the war, but not many. Um, and so there is there there are many different um, circumstances for all the different uh, Zionist colonies and who was supporting them. Laurie, did you have a question? Yeah, I did. Um, first, I wanted to thank you three 
for your presentations. I learned a lot and now have a lot of work to do on my first chapter of my book. I have to go back and think through some questions that you raised. I had a question for Lauren and a question for Andrew. Um, you mentioned this kind of shift from an analysis of racial inferiority to cultural inferiority in the imperial or colonial imagination that you see in campaign fiction. I just wonder if you had if you had more to say about the meaning of culture and cultural inferiority and what culture meant for these folks. And you sort of seem to suggest that for some the notion of cultural inferiority implied the possibility of tutoring into advancement and progress. Mm -hmm. But couldn't it also be that the notion of culture is just as racial and ontological in a sense mm -hmm. as the notion of race itself? So I'm, I'm just curious mm -hmm. if you have kind of a conceptual historical um, idea about that. And then just very quickly, so if I can just clarify, your um, suggestion is that the the Damascus program kind of did what it set out to do, which was unify the voice of the Arabs. And you can kind of, you've traced that in the chronology of the petitions themselves. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, to be honest, and this is something that I've thought through in other contexts maybe a little bit more, but I'm certainly, I mean, it's not something I'm looking at in great detail. I would really like to and kind of explore this a little bit more. But I think this, this shift that I meant was slightly more from a racial conception of inferior, inferiority that was related to the thinking of like biological race that was fashionable by the turn of the century or shortly after. Um, and that even some nationalist movements in the 1920s were picking up on and were using. Um, but I think this idea came through most sharply in Egypt in the way that the British began to use the cultural inferiority uh, line as a means to justify their presence there. Um, I think for sure, though, culture and race kind of meld together because the whole notion of the mandates were built on the fact that the African mandates were racially and culturally more or less uh, in, inferior to the Arab, and so there was this kind of hierarchy within the way that the mandates were done based on these notions. Um, but as far as that goes, it, yeah, I mean, it's something that I'd like to, like, the shift to look at a little bit more. It was certainly there in British thinking in Egypt um, and in India as well at the time, but it's something to flesh out a bit more. I can't really... Sorry, I can't like explore this right now in, in great detail. But if you have thoughts on it, I mean, I would be really interested in. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you were you were just add, like tracing through the. I mean, there there are there's a standard petition uh, form handed in. I mean, you, you may have seen this. It's it's on. So a lot of this, if in case you're not aware, if you're interested in this, it's. A lot of this is online, as I think you mentioned, mm -hmm. Lauren. It's a, Oberlin College has dig, digitized a lot of the documents from the King Crane Commission. It's got its own nice little website. Uh, and so if you want to look anything up, it's great primary sources so for you or your students. Um, and it's, it's rather easy to do. But yes, the standardization wasn't entirely standardized, but you did say in Aleppo of the number of the uh, um, petitions that have survived, because there are some, there aren't that many, but there are some, especially not, King Crane Commission has this crazy number. They said they had 
over 1,800 petitions or something like this. But they didn't have 1,800 physical petitions unless some of them just got lost somewhere. Uh, there are some in Stanford, uh, really, they have these great long ones that are as long as this table with all these stamps on it. And so it's hard to tell. I don't know how the King Crane Commission came up with these grand numbers. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, there might be like 40 or 50 of them around, and maybe more in the region. One of the, uh, one of the, the sad, um, well, sad on many, many levels is um, I got my Arabic up to a point in 2011 um, to get to Damascus where I knew there was some stuff about the King Crane Commission. And uh, yeah, the timing was, was, was horrible. And Damascus was okay in 2011. And I, so I told my wife that I was, I should probably, I could go. And then she said, no, you can't. And I didn't go. Um, so my book became what it was. And I, something that my book is missing is more from the, uh, a lot of the stuff, the, one of the great things about World War I in the Middle East and how the Renaissance and the study of World War I in the Middle East is going right now is people are finding incredible new stuff incredible diaries of soldiers in the war. And Yia Dawkins' book on the social history of World War I and the Ottoman Empire is just great. Uh, Yia Dawkin, um, he teaches down at Tulane. Um, it's, 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 really, um, it's really wonderful, and he, and he makes great use of this in uh, Leila Fawaz's book um, on the, um, the more, it's more military and social history of soldiers and whatnot, but it's still uh, also um, excellent and makes use of a lot of these primary sources. And so there is definitely a lot more out there on experiences from the region's point of people at the region's point of view, how they experience the King Crane Commission, which is why I love hearing a lot of your in-depth stuff on, on how Palestinians um, uh, experienced it. Um, but yes, there was more of a standardization. Um, with some, I mean, Lebanon was different because there were a lot of Maronites, and so they started calling more for a French mandate, and so there was a lot more call for that. So they, of course, didn't go with the standard Damascus program. Um, but at least deeper in, in Syria, um, it did get more standard. Why is new material actually becoming available? <laughs> Many different people are finding um, First World War diaries in attics. Uh, uh, people are what? finding and in attics. In attics. In in, uh, it's not, it's, it's yeah. not declassification. Uh, no, it's no, private. it's it's from yeah, private and from the region. As far as my understanding of some some of the things that um, people have found, um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm not I'm not a grand expert on that, but uh, but. Uh, there's a, that short book of the diary, the soldier's diary by Selim Tamari, mm -hmm. uh, and and there are many more of those diaries. Uh, Mustafa Oxakal is mining all of them that he can get his hands on for his next book on this, uh, and uh, and he gave me some ridiculous number that I don't remember of all the different war diaries they now have, uh, and so yeah, so they're out there, and, and I'm not exactly sure how they all have been found, but I know some of them. Can I can I ask you? Couple questions. Yeah. Um, you
what the four bottom lines are. Because I think, from the Bible, you're telling us that, that um, it was an exercise in kicking the can down the road and a, an exercise in the British maneuvering uh, over the, the way they, they accommodated but kind of killed off or was an element of um, managing. They managed the King Crane Commission phenomenon in such a way as it didn't interfere too much with what they wanted to do, and that that was the kind of number of the story. Um, and then we've got Andrew telling us that the real story, the real meat here, is in the evidence collected, which we need on what the feelings were in the region at the time. And my take on what you, Lauren, said about well, this discussion we just had about the merging of what's the difference between cultural prejudice and racism. Um, I think the British were overtly racist and the Americans were, well, I posit to you that um, the Americans need to distinguish themselves from the British because they were under imperial and the British actually had no shame about categorizing the natives of their empire in hierarchies and so on. They thought they were being scientific. They thought, they, they thought these were facts. Whereas the Americans actually had some more footwork to do to reconcile their, their, their notion of standing for free people and being anti-imperial. So of course they reduced culture, didn't they? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't out and out then say race, would they? At that time, in the 1920s? Yeah. Um, of course oh, they were. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they weren't dealing with black people in the Middle East, they were dealing with brown No, but th this was a time of evolutionary progress where, you know, there is the pyramid of civilization. So the West is the most civilized and everything else there is yeah, different degrees, that. you know. Surely the way the Americans were saying it at the time is going to be different from the way mm. British. Mm. I'm going to be talk this, this is my talk tonight, actually. But you hit on it um, earlier, so you can. Yeah. I mean, that's I, I, maybe to even go back to Laurie's question, I don't know if religion also played a role in this cultural way of thinking, particularly for the British. All of a sudden, religion and like Islamic fanaticism becomes part of the discourse around the King Crane Commission and everything else going on in Palestine, and also you know, the support from the French for the Maronites. Mm. Yeah. The Muslims of the Empire. Yeah. Really up in arms. Yeah. They went along with the Declaration. Yeah. Yeah. And so on. I mean, the, 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 the Muslim sensitivities were all right. what was used instrumentally, weren't they? Yeah. At this time, for sure. I don't want to steal my own thunder. So <laughs> 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 I, what I would say, I mean, this this sort of goes to a question that I had for Lori that. Um, I hadn't thought of the King Crane Commission too legally because you're thinking of them in terms of international law and they did more or less see themselves as an arm of a League of Nations that essentially didn't exist yet. I mean that there was the founding documents and they were, uh, they were quoting Article 22 say that tonight, but uh, talk about that, but uh, to every, after, after people continually called for independence, uh, 
for about a couple weeks, the King Crane Commission started reading Article 22 of the League of Nations Covenant to the people they were who were about to give evidence to them, saying, "You're not getting independence." <laughs> yeah, you're, and but so but the question for me is then, I don't know how legalistically the King Crane Commission thought about this. Henry King wrote most of the report. Crane wrote very little. Uh, Liebeyer, Liebeyer, I've never really known how to pronounce his name, and I should. Uh, but uh, um, they, the report's written in very moral terms and economic terms, right? And, and there are sections that I can recall that maybe are a bit more legalistic, but I just don't, I, I just haven't thought through it in the way you're thinking through it. So I'm interested to think what did international law mean to the King Crane Commission at this point, sort of the way you thought, what does culture mean? Yeah, yeah and, and also maybe to respond to your initial question. So when I talk about international law, I'm not talking about um, I'm not talking about doctrine and kind of formal measures of international law. I'm more interested in the kind of justificatory discourse that is mobilized through all kinds of international legal mechanisms, which have to do with rights and sovereignty and, and the terms of international legal intervention also change over time. But it is itself fundamentally a moral discourse. And so I, you know, I have a kind of broad or even fuzzy approach to thinking about international law as a theme in Palestinian self-representation across this hundred years. So I'm not sure what twist in the story you saw in my presentation, because I don't think there's a twist so much as a bunch of somersaults the, the puzzle underneath my investigation has been why is it that Palestinians of different sorts continuously engage with international law in this broad sense via these commissions and other forms like the League of Nations, despite the fact that they are continually and repeatedly let down by them. And my hypothesis is that Partly it has to do with the fact that the folks who are doing this engaging are liberals, like the people who have come to listen to them, and they kind of agree. So that's part of the story. There's this kind of liberal entanglement. Another part of the story has to do with the transformations in international legal mechanisms that constantly come up with a new forum for Palestinians to make their case within. So the King Crane Commission and the League of Nations was an early forum, and then it becomes the UN and now it's the International Criminal Court. So that's what I mean by a kind of somersault. So there's a new set of hopes that are dangled in front of people that finally the international community will hear these pleas for sovereignty and independence that are enshrined in these documents according to Palestinian interpretation of them. I know that our focus is on 1919, I'm jumping forward slightly, but the question is coming to your to what extent do you think statelessness is a factor in this change in decisions of the session groups on Palestinians to keep turning uh, to the international community, be it the UN or I'm just wondering why there's the person the palace. There is a distinctiveness to it, but you want to really think about, <clears throat> about post-modern statelessness and seeking some kind of alternative. Um, yeah, I don't think it's post-48 statelessness. I think it's a it's a continual condition of statelessness, mm -hmm. right? In which there is no sovereign that they can appeal to other than, other than this kind of imagined international community that 
has a kind of crystallized manifestation later in the UN and previously in the United Nations. And of course, what they're constantly calling for is a state. So statelessness is the precondition of their, their claims. Yes, I was trying to uh, that the League of Nations was dissolved for the UN to be Yeah, uh, the, if we, I mean, talking about the League of Nations, of course the U.S. never joined the League of Nations too, right? So this arm of the, uh, this King Crane Commission thinking of itself as an arm of the League of Nations, it turned into an arm of the League of Nations, sort of that they would never have had any part in anyway. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's strange. I mean, at the point of statelessness, like at this point, 1919 is a, uh, uh, like this idea of statelessness is there. None of these people know what's next, right? They, like the whole Ottoman Empire is not a state anymore, with maybe the exception of where Kamal, Mustafa Kamal is in central mm -hmm. Anatolia, and everyone else is just sort of waiting. I think Keith, Keith Wadbaugh has a good quote uh, for this, that they're just wondering, uh, what is this all, what was this war all about? And because the war, that's the other thing we can't forget, this war was horrible. Uh, other than Syria, at least as far as the numbers that we have, oh no, sorry, not Syria. Other than Serbia, the Ottoman Empire lost the highest percentage of their population. Um, greater Syria, and we all know about the Syria famine. And there's great new work coming out on this now, constantly too. Uh, they were coming out of this horribly traumatic moment, um, and to have a sort of hopeful moment in 1919, but still a very curious moment because nobody knew what was going to happen next, and and there were a lot of rumors floating around and. Uh, um, you know, even, I mean, the British didn't know what was, going, what was going to happen next. You have Allenby saying, this commission's a terrible idea, but after you just let the genie out of the bottle, it has to go, because he is pro-commission after he's anti-commission. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and this happens with a lot of people. And so it, it's, there's this pondering of what, where, where does it, what is our state? What, what, of what whole are we now a part? And, uh, mm -hmm. and I, can I just add on to that very quickly? I think it's precisely that fluidity and maybe even you know, liminality of this moment that is part of what allowed so much hope and enthusiasm to bubble up amongst Palestinians and other Arabs because the future you know, was kind of oyster to be I think we'll take one more question and then we um, have to. Uh, looking at um, how the French split Syria after the mandate, was there as a sense of political identities outside the mainstream Arab Muslim understanding of it, say the Arabs, the Jews, or even the other uh, minorities in today's understanding as the Kurds in the north, or even the Turks in Istanbul, uh, which was still part of Syria according to King Kingpin uh, division. Did you come across something like this? And from the local petitions or from the other side, from the Americans understanding of how they how the place divided? That's a hard question, uh, and I would, yeah, I mean, because we do have these petitions, and you see, these are there are some very interesting petitions, and there are there is this one petition um, from uh, a coalition of unions in Beirut, and so these people group together with their union as their primary vehicle for talking to the King Crane Commission and sent a petition in that way. There are petitions from women. 
um, as well, groups of women um, and things along these lines. There's certainly, say, for example, a consolidation. Uh, like the Maronites did have fairly, in Lebanon, had fairly cohesive, um, uh, fairly cohesive things to say to the, the King Crane Commission. But you also had, say, battles within the Greek Orthodox community of Lebanon that come out in, in dueling petitions and, and sort of dueling groups of Greek Orthodox uh, saying different things from the same town and small towns too, like Tripoli, Travis, you know. And so um, I don't think I can answer your question in its entirety. I don't think the, my study of the King Crane Commission really brought that out. And, and that also is true in greater Syria because of the uniformity of the testimony that showed up, because decisions made to by groups to say, no, we will go with essentially the Damascus program. Sometimes they tweaked it a little bit. Uh, and so you start to lose that a little more. But you also get a top-down imposition of what the King Crane Commission, what these Americans thought Ottoman society was like. And so they had, they started, they said, okay, we're going to talk to the leaders of the Muslim community, the leaders of this, this, and they'd come up with a list of 10 to talk to in Java. And that is how they saw this communally, largely and maybe a couple other important people um, as, as well. And so those, there are some lists, not, all, not every list for every town survived, but a lot of them did. And so you get to see how the King Crane Commission saw the region, and you get to hear what people are saying to the King Crane Commission, sometimes in very truncated form, um, but to get as far as what you're asking right now, you need a lot more stuff around it um, to, uh, to that, than I could find in my book. It's a great question. I think we will have to uh, call it uh, a day, but, but in the meantime, I'd like to give a big hand to all four of our speakers today. It's been really very <laughs>